This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Um, this is Friday. It, we're only an hour into Friday, but it is certainly Friday. TGIF, thank God it's Friday. Thank God it's Frank. And this is the hour that so many of you have been waiting for all week. Because this is the hour where I don't control the programming. You do. You get to determine what we talk about for the next hour with one caveat. As long as what you're calling about is in the form of a question. Anything you want to know about, now's the time to ask it because we are in, going to do for the next hour, 800-848-9222. The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. That's right. Questions about film, television, books, business, radio, the business of radio, cocktails, advice, my personal history, pro wrestling, gambling, Atlantic City, local politics, restaurants, New York, the criminal justice system, aliens, the mob, any hypothetical questions, my personal preferences, relationships, baseball, the culture at large, religion, pro, uh, foreign policy, you name it, whatever you have questions about, I will do my best to answer it. Now, Sometimes I won't be able to answer it. I'll do the best that I can and explain why I can't answer it. But uh, you now control the questions for the next hour. 800-848-WABC. Let's jump right on into it. Let me begin with Pete here in New York. Hello, Pete. Uh, hi, Frank. Uh, 1969, would you rather be seventh game of the World Series Mission Control when uh, Apollo 11 hits the surface of the moon or a Woodstock? Oh, uh, the, you know, I'm not as much of a music fan as as a lot of other people are. So the the, the battle for me is between the first two options that you uh, that you mentioned. So, look, I, I am a big Met fan. Uh, so to be at... Uh, at uh, the World Series, well, so th- there was no Game Seven. There was only five I mean, games. Game Game Five. Sorry, yeah. Right. So I would have chosen to be at Game Five of the World Series. Oh, as as much sure. as, as much as I'm, I love space and I'm interested in the moon. To me, uh, the Mets winning the World Series seven years after being the worst team in the history of baseball that to me is almost an equivalent miracle to uh to the moon landing but it's a great question pete thank you 800-848-WABC that's 1-800-848-9222 curly is in hell's kitchen hello curly charlie oh so anyway the question i have to answer to ask you about with with all the uh crises all the mismanagement going on so the baby formula shortage Mm -hmm. thing and we just discovered there were pallets of baby formula uh, down by the Texas border for the illegal aliens, all this stuff going on. Basically, the variation of the question I've asked you in the past is if we have a rematch in the next presidential election versus Biden again, who do you think would win with all the, the chaos that Michigan is going on? Uh, you know, it's a good question. And look, I think, honestly, Trump, for all his faults, if the election were held today, Trump would win. 
Uh, now, if things change, if the circumstances change over the next year and a half, two years, then maybe maybe my answer would change. But I think if the election were held today, uh, Trump would win. I think um, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's my answer. I, I think, you know, if you look at inflation, uh, a lot of folks that didn't like Trump stylistically, uh, they didn't like his tweets. They didn't like how he was treating people. They didn't like his maybe even his policies. They're saying, all right, well, I wasn't paying $4.65 a a gallon for gasoline when Trump was president. Uh, I think that's it. I think the very visible uh, failures on the world stage that President Biden has dealt with, I think that's a factor. I think the crisis at the border is something that, especially in border states, uh, is something that's going to be a factor, particularly states like Arizona. I think um, the rampant crime problem in America's cities all over the country, that's a problem uh, that I think might take the handful of genuine swing voters that went from Trump in 2016 to Biden in 2020 and might put them back in the Trump column. So now that being said, I think things could change by 2024. If the Republicans overreach by banning abortion in 25 states, I think then Biden would win. I think if uh, the Republicans overreach with um, once they get the majority by pushing some foolish agenda or by pushing an impeachment of uh, of Biden, then I think Biden would win. Uh, but uh, I don't honestly think that Biden w- is going to run again. I think there's a, a good chance that Trump will run again. I have a tough time seeing any scenario in which Biden runs again. But if the if the if the election were held today, I think that um, I think that Trump would win. If there were a rematch. Thank you. Nick is in New Jersey. Hello, Nick. Oh, Frank, how are you doing there? Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you, this $40 billion package to assist Ukraine was passed in the House. Do you think that's going to be approved by the Senate and and go to the president for signature? you think a good chance to be approved? Well, unfortunately, I do. Uh, the And I'm not for the $40 billion. But um, unfortunately, I do think it's going to uh, be approved. So far, the only thing that is uh, providing a stopgap to that is Rand Paul, who's who's holding up the funding. But look, there's such a bipartisan consensus right now in Washington of people needing to support Vladimir Zelensky and Ukraine. And uh, the, the thinking is that Americans are obliged to fund whatever weapons that they that the Ukrainians ask for. So unfortunately, I do think it's going to pass. I, I wouldn't vote for it if I were in Congress, but I do think it's going to pass. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Hey, Frank. Listen, I was suspended uh, for 30 days from Facebook. I want to ask you if you think it's, it's reasonable, keeping in mind, obviously, the tenets of free speech. And what I said was, in light of what's going on at the border and the lies that he's perpetrating, I said this guy, Mayorkas, should be tried for treason and, if found guilty, hung. And I was suspended for that. Do you think that that what I said was unreasonable? Well, let me think here. Um, I'm not a big advocate of calling for uh, public officials to be to be killed. Um, but the way you the way you couched it is it's not as if you're urging somebody to set to go to Mayorkas's house and stone him. Uh, so, I, look, 
I, I wouldn't have said what you said, and I think it's I find it objectionable. But no, I don't think you should have been suspended from that. You're talking about a potential criminal charge and what right. you view as the uh, best right. penalty, uh, b- the best sentence for that charge. So no, I don't think that's reasonable. Eight hundred eight four eight W A B C Neil on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey Frank. Uh- I can't ask anything about you because I actually know everything about you. Yeah, uh, uh, but uh, you know, my youngest son is getting married in June. My oldest son is making a wedding party uh, in August at the Staten because uh, he got married during the pandemic, and they're worried about you know the rise of COVID and you're paying all that money for people to come and uh, spend you know losing it because people won't show up. Uh, I was wondering, your, your brother's having a wedding in Hawaii. Does he have the same concerns? Uh, about COVID or about people not coming? Well, about COVID, people getting COVID and not being able to show up. Uh, no, no. So far, actually, the the numbers of family members and friends that are attending only seem to be growing, actually. So, no, I, I uh, that doesn't seem to be a big concern for, for him so far. And, he, and he's, uh, and again, he's not... Um, you know, he he's vaccinated. He's a, a Ph.D. and he's not a right winger by any means. Not that I think covid uh, should be viewed through partisan lines at all. He's he's a Marxist. But no, so far, both he and his fiance have not reported any people, any concern about people not attending because of covid. OK, Frank, thank you. Thank you, Neil. Eight hundred eight four eight W A B C. Frank is on Long Island. Hello, Frank. Hey Frank, well, wonderful show as usual. Thank you. So I voted. I voted for Biden, and I will never vote for Mr. Trump. Although I could talk about a lot about good and bad, but but I think he's chaotic. And but Biden is doing an absolute horrible job. He's too old. He's out of it. His staff is incompetent, as far as I can tell, because they're they're running the show. And I'm not sure all they're thinking about is trying to get reelected or something. And they're not even trying to address some of these supply issues that have been lurking for years now, a year and a half that they could have addressed. Uh, and some of these other things, they they just seem to be, they, it's just, I mean, the border issue. I mean, why is he letting 200,000 people in every, every month? I mean, oh, none of this makes sense. It doesn't even make sense politically. Yeah. Well, so your question is, uh, is what exactly? Well, my, my, my question is, uh, who's, who's going to step up, either Republican or Democratic, that can, that can satisfy someone like me who I really do, do not want to vote for Donald Trump. Right. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of the folks and, that didn't vote. vote for, I'll vote for anyone. On either side of this aisle, but I right, right. Now, you're I you're, you're anybody any but Democrat Trump. Got it. Yeah. So it is interesting, Frank. And I think the exact problem and the exact mentality that you articulated is one of the reasons why I don't think Biden would run again. Um, I think Pete Buttigieg is going to be a very viable Democratic candidate in 2024. I think there's a chance that Hillary Clinton could run in 2024. Clearly, Kamala Harris wants to run. In 2024. And I think there's an outside chance. Well, I don't know that she's really in simpatico with where a lot of the energy is within the Democratic Party these days. I think there's an outside chance that Amy Klobuchar could end up as the nominee in uh, 2024. 
Um, as far as the Republicans go, it's clear that Chris Christie is running. It's clear that Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, is running uh, or at least wants to run. And it's clear that uh, Mike Pence wants to run. I don't know if if you'd be any more comfortable with Mike Pence than Donald Trump. But, you know, I think the candidacy that I find the person I'm really hoping runs is Tulsi Gabbard as a third party candidate. I would love to see Tulsi Gabbard run. Wild horses could not keep me from going to vote for Tulsi Gabbard. I am very frustrated with her that she has not yet agreed to appear on this show. I don't know what's keeping her, especially I think she lives in Hawaii. I know she represented Hawaii, but I, I believe she still lives there. It's a very convenient time if you uh, if you live in Hawaii. I would love to see her run. But I think, you know, based on the things that Andrew Yang has been saying, his new forward party, it seems like uh, he's working very hard to get Mark Cuban to run as the candidate of the forward party. And I think Mark Cuban might speak to the people that are both never Biden and never Trump. I think he's going to have a lot of appeal to folks that don't like Trump and could never vote for Trump or people that have just been turned off by Trump's obsession with election fraud and um, people that don't think Biden is doing a good job either. So I think uh, maybe Mark Cuban's your guy. Maybe if Tulsi runs, she's your person. But look, I don't see any way that Biden's the nominee again in 2024. I just don't. I mean, and I don't say this as a Biden hater at all. I just the guy doesn't look like. He's ready to be president now. Talk about the rigors of another campaign where he's not going to be able to essentially hide due to COVID and not do any media appearances. I can't see Biden running again. So there will be a Democratic alternative to Biden. Who that is, I don't know. And how palatable that person is for you, I don't know either. 800-848-WABC. Mondello is in Harlem. Hello, Mondello. Hey, good morning. I've got a New York question for you. I'm ready. Since Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, ends up being such a great topic for a Broadway show, who's the next New Yorker that deserves uh, a Broadway play? Ooh, that's a good one. The next New Yorker. Well, look, I mean, I am uh, partial to the person I'm about to mention, but I think even if I weren't, I think this would be a an incredible uh, topic given all the scholarship that's already out there on him because remember the Hamilton play was based on the Ron Chernow book um, on uh, on him and there's been a lot better books about the person that I'm about to mention and that's Theodore Roosevelt. You know almost every aspect of Theodore Roosevelt's life is rich with drama and could be fodder for a Broadway play. You could do a Broadway play just about Theodore Roosevelt's time as the police commissioner here in New York, riding the trains, catching bad guys at night. That's a a show in and of itself. You could do another show just about him being a rancher in North Dakota, the adventures he had out there. You could do another show about him getting elected to the New York State Assembly in the 20 in his 20s and um, submitting more legislation than any legislator in, in at that time, you could do another show about his time as a president, as the trust buster. You could do another show about his time as an ex-president and then running against his former protege, William Howard Taft. Uh, to me, uh, Theodore Roosevelt is one of the greatest characters in the history in history, number one. And I think he's an incredible uh, literary character as well. And I'm surprised we actually haven't seen a musical about Theodore Roosevelt. So he'd get my vote. Hmm, okay. 
Yeah, I would have thought of uh, Ed Koch, but yeah, that's a great one. Koch is good too. Koch is good too. Koch liked the theater a lot. Um, I mean, you know, look, I would love to see a Koch musical. I was just at a a dinner last night and uh, they were talking a lot about Ed Koch. And you really have to appreciate how multifaceted and how versatile the fellow was. Henry is in Manhattan. Hello, Henry. Hi, good evening. Good evening. Um, I was just wondering as a technical matter, what what do you understand a political party to be? And uh, secondly, uh, whether the term rhino uh, makes any sense in that regard. Well, look, uh, I, I mean, rhino is a pejorative term that conservatives or people who think of themselves as conservatives give to others that don't that deviate from their orthodoxy. So I've never really given that term much credence and you know but it's not for me to say i'm not a republican a political party at least in new york state is a party that runs a candidate for governor that gets 130,000 votes and gets ballot access in doing so so i think that's i'll go with the legal definition as far as i'm concerned a political party is a party that achieves ballot access in a state or multiple states or in the whole country uh so um yeah uh, that's where i'm at uh, that's where i'm at 800-848-WABC Franklin is in Patterson, New Jersey. Hello. Hi. Um, I want to know why I haven't heard anything about how baby formula can be easily made at home. You know, it's funny. That's a great question. And I, I may have re- the recipe in front of me right now. You want to hear it? Yeah, let me hear it. I, I mean, we okay. may have a baby formula problem as well, so let's hear it. Mixing 13 ounces of evaporated milk with 19 ounces of water and two tablespoons of either corn syrup, that's the brand Caro, K-A-R-O, or two tablespoons of sugar, that's for protein. Cow's milk could be substituted for evaporated milk or goat's milk or even donkey milk. Yeah, it's uh, well, thank you. Thank you, Franklin. I look people used before there was commercial. Yeah. Well, hey, um, I, I can't speak to that. I did look up. Uh, some ways to make your own baby formula when we were experiencing a severe baby formula shortage. And a lot of the articles that I found online had a lot of cautionary tales about making your own baby formula. So I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying double and triple check your sources. Maybe just don't take Franklin's word for it. I'm not disputing uh, his recipe there. But and different babies have different um, nutritional needs. Uh, For instance, we have uh, a couple that we're friends with. They have a baby. He has a severe allergy to certain types of things. He can only take one type of baby formula. So I don't know how the Franklin recipe would uh, would play into that. All right. Uh, We'll continue with your questions in a minute. We're going to take your questions on any subject. Uh, we got a lot to get to today. And uh, in addition to Ask Frank Anything, we have denunciations coming up at 3. We have a cryptocurrency panel coming up in the 4 o'clock hour. And we have uh, Matt Richtel is going to be here. We're going to talk creativity. Can't wait. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. Frank Morano, 77 WABC. I 
flickering shadows of love on her blind. Deceive me, I watched and went out of my mind My, 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 Delilah Why, 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 Delilah I could see that girl was no good for me Slave that no man could free At break of day when that man drove away I was waiting I crossed the street to her house And she opened the door The great Tom Jones here on 77 WABC. Uh, I'm Frank Morano. Uh, every Friday morning for the first hour of this program, we do uh, ask Frank anything, an opportunity for you to ask me questions on any subject. Uh, we have a lot of people emailing questions as well. I always give deference to the phone questions first. So um, we're going to go through as many of them as possible, and then I will get to at least a few email questions. If you want to email me a question, you can do so at uh, 800-848-9222. That's one eight, excuse me. You can email me at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. All right. Um, as I said, we are in the midst of... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Robert is in New Jersey. Hello, Robert. Are you aware of the depth and breadth of the wrongful convictions of Janine Pirro? Yes. Michael in New Jersey. Michael. Moving on. Uh, Bernie in Ohio. Hey, uh, Frank, I heard you're pretty good at baseball. What, what, uh, who did you play for or what positions? Well, I never, I didn't make my, um, my high school team. I played ball in high school, but I happened to go to a high school that had a very good baseball team. Um, and I was not good enough. I tried out and was not good enough to make the team. But, um, I played and still play when I play these days or, or when I play softball these days, I play first base, even though I'm right handed and most of the really great fielding first basemen are left handed. Uh, so I played, um, you know, I played informally with my friends and everything, and I played in all sorts of leagues, you know, growing up in, you, in, in New York. Did you play for American Legion team? No. Uh, you know, I, I played, um, you know, I played in basically Little League and then Babe Ruth League and then just informally. Uh, and, you know, and then softball for the prior radio station that I worked at. And then if we have a softball team here anytime soon, I'll play for the softball team here. But I did uh, try... Uh, when I was a little older, to make the transition to third base. And I was okay at third base. I'd like to think I was very good at first base. I'll hold my first baseman um, glovemanship up to anybody else's, honestly. But 
one of the mistakes I made, and I'm not going to let my son do the same thing, is I always loved the position of first base, and I still do. It's my favorite position to play. Now, when you're a kid, when I was 9, 10, 11, that's the position I wanted to play. But what happens when you're at first base? You don't throw. You don't exercise your throwing arm. And I really wish my dad, um, who in one year, especially a year, I think I was in fifth grade or so, when I was very good at baseball, uh, offensively and defensively, I wish he had discouraged me from playing first base and instead encouraged me to play third or something else because I got so accustomed to playing first base that my throwing arm to this day is not what it should be in terms of accuracy. So then later on, as a teenager, when I tried to make the transition to third base, for the most part it was okay, but sometimes I ended up making these really crazy wild throws because I didn't have the kind of experience making the throws from third base that uh, that a lot of other good third basemen did. I also played first base. Oh, really? Because I'm left-handed. Yeah, see? They stuck me on. For, I mean, yeah. they stick me, but I like playing it because yeah. it made sense. It was Same, well, yeah, exactly. 800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Michael in New Jersey. Hello, Michael. Yeah, hello. I, I, you had mentioned a while back that the reason they stopped that scared straight program is because it wasn't working. I didn't think it would ever work because it wasn't enough. But let's say we had the death penalty in New York, or a state that does have it. And let's say it was the electric chair, which is like really a horrible way to die. If you were to take these young kids, put them behind a glass, and watch them basically fry someone, do you think that would scare the hell out of them enough where they would stop committing crimes and act like normal human beings? Or would they continue to act like animals? So the question, Michael, the answer is I have no idea. And I'm a big believer in not making policy, especially when it comes to something as important as steering at-risk youth away from a life of crime. I'm a believer in not making policy on what Frank Morano's instinct or what Frank Morano's gut says. Now, my gut says that, yeah, if a kid sees somebody electrocuted, that they'll, they'll flip out. However, as I said with the Scared Straight program, didn't work. So I'd want to see some data to back that up before it was replicated in a whole bunch of other different areas as well. 800-848-9222. Jack is in Brooklyn. Hello, Jack. Hello, Frank. Uh, I wanted to ask you the trolley question. If you're in a trolley, you can't stop it. And on the track you're going right now, there are three people tied down to the tracks. Um, You have... Or you could change the track. The only option you have is to change the person. But if you change the track, you will be you will be actively killing that one person. Whereas if you let the if you let the natural path go, you won't be killing those three people. But those but more people will die. Well, so um, well, I would go with whatever option has the fewest people dying. But you're but you're killing that one person though. I know, but well, I'm yeah, also you didn't kill those three people, right? But I, I guess I'm you're also saving sa- three people, but you're, but you're killing one. Whereas if you don't change anything, you're not saving anybody, but you're not killing somebody. Yeah, um, it's a it's a good question, Jack. I think if I had to, you know, usually when you get to make decisions like this, it's so spur of the moment and so quick that a lot of times you don't have the luxury of forethought. 
But if I did have the opportunity to think about it and consider it, yes, I would I would do the option that results in fewer people dying, whether it's at my hand right. or or others. 800-848-WABC. Elaine is in Middletown. Hello, Elaine. Hi, Frank. Oh, it's nice to talk to you. You too. I just have a question about Hillary Clinton. She can't forget about the the uh, votes and all that she didn't get. So you said uh, Donald Trump can't forget about the, the, the election, and neither can Hillary. So I can't imagine Hillary doing anything. She needs to be in jail. My pick for president of the United States is Mike Pompeo, a West Point grad, the best secretary of state we've ever had. So I'm hoping he will consider running for president. All right. I don't think that's much of a question, so I'll let that statement just stand on it is. Again, what we're looking for here is questions, right? If you have questions about something, that's what we want to hear. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Jimmy in Rockland County. Hello, Jimmy. Good morning, Frank. Now, the biggest change since you had your adorable Carmine, like, um, I don't want to lead you into answers, but like, what has been the biggest change that, that has occurred since well, um, this beautiful person the into the world? The biggest change um, in, any, in any area? No, I, so particularly to Carmine having a baby. Right. Uh, so, I mean, I guess the biggest change is um i have no money and and even <laughs> and uh even less sleep that's what i would say well sleep is something i was just warning because we were definitely lacking in that department yeah so i would and say that just, that's that's probably two of the biggest okay things. i want to lead you into this now when you held him you finally found out i'm not saying you didn't adore your wife and love you know the people in your family but did you not just know now what love is uh, no doubt yeah, about it. No, no, yeah, no doubt about it. I'll tell you, a even a whole stage, a whole new meaning of love. You know. Yeah. No. No. That's certainly true. Uh, all that stuff that people say about fatherhood, it may be a cliche, but like many cliches, it's uh, it's ab- absolutely true. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Yeah, I will say, you know, um, when I go to when my son's cr- crying um, when I when I get home uh, six thirty or seven o'clock, and he want he's ready to start the day or he's hungry, or he wants to be changed or fed. Um, And, you know, I'm on no sleep, right? I I go from here to stay, struggling to stay awake to get home, and I'm on no sleep, and then he'll cry or whatever, and I'll go over to his crib, and, you know, I'll stammer over to his crib because I, I can't even keep my eyes open. And then when I appear over his crib, and he goes from crying to smiling, I have to tell you, you know, it's such a rewarding thing, and it's one of those situations where even though I'm exhausted and sometimes physically tired, so you know, physically hurting because I'm so tired, I don't even really mind it uh, because it's so it's so delight it's so delightful to see his smiling face with this look that he has that I've basically rescued him. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, but uh, lifestyle wise, it's the lack of money. And the lack of sleep that are the most immediate uh, things that I can recall. 800-848-WABC. Peter is in Queens. Hello, Peter. Hello, Frank. I got one question. When Biden stopped the building of the wall, somebody said we're still paying for the wall anyway. 
Is that true or false? You know, I, I don't know, honestly. And a lot of Biden's critics on the left say that the wall construction has continued. But honestly, there's so much misinformation on this, Peter. Uh, I don't know uh, that. I don't know that for sure. I think uh, the payment issue of the wall, and I, I want to research this before I, you know, am quoted on this. But I think the payment issue from the wall, of the wall, I think a lot of that is true because I think a lot of that included funding for prospective construction, not just, oh, we have, um, uh, you know, $10 million earmarked. Let's go build $10 million worth of wall. I think a lot of money was earmarked for future construction and not all that construction has taken place. So it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case. But I'll put that on my list of things to research a bit further this weekend. Uh, Tommy is in Brooklyn. Hello, Tommy. Morning, Frank. I got Morning. a little point, a little point to the question. You know, number one question for you. Sure. Um, first thing I want to say is about Koch. I know you're, you know, you're talking about Koch before. Uh, it was interesting. I, I, I met him and um, I had to go to repair a job, repair a, a repair job at Monster Spice Monster in, in Manhattan. And uh, he was there. He came in, you know, with the uh, with, uh, Aaron Strite. And he uh, comes in the, ta- in the big Cadillac and he says, uh, oh, he comes over to the, thing, the machine that I was repairing. He says, oh, what is this? Yes, I told him about it. I introduced myself. And um, I, I saw him like three or four times after that. Every time I saw him, he remembered my name. He remembered things about me. He said, oh, you're fixing the gears over here. It's just amazing. You know, he's an interesting man. Though. Very. Oh, that's man. for sure. Absolutely. All right. And uh, my question is, you know, about starting your career, you know, what I want to know is about when you've done it to the radio, how did you become so proficient at interviewing? And you segue so smoothly into, um, and, and you always keep your audience intrigued. And uh, how do you remember so much stuff? You, you know, you got a memory that's phenomenal. Uh, well, thank you, uh, Tommy. I appreciate that. You know, it's funny. I was um, I was at a, a cigar bar last night, and um, I ran into this fellow that I haven't seen in 17 years, and he didn't remember meeting me, and he was blown away that I remembered his name. And um, and then he it turns out he listens to this show. His name's Pat Russo, a great guy, and uh, and he said, uh, you know, basically what you just said that uh, you know clearly you have some memory if you remembered me from 17 years ago and uh, that that show shows on the air um so the, the memory situation is is tricky because i feel like um you know memory is something that i work at and uh, i think it, it's it's tricky but um let me answer answer the first part of your question first in terms of interview proficiency you know curtis said um when when i started interning here at this radio station years ago and i think he's right that it takes years uh, of being a broadcaster before you're even comfortable on a microphone. And I honestly think that the only way to get good at interviewing, I'm not saying that I'm good, but the only way to to do it well is is to practice, right? So I think okay. um, the fact that, um, you know, when I was 15, I started doing a public access television show, interviewing people on public access cable television, I think that was a factor. And then, um, you know, doing a radio show in college that was an interview show, I think that was another factor. But I, I think more than that, honestly, it, um, it has to do with being – 
genuinely curious about people and about things. So I I wouldn't interview someone if I wasn't really genuinely interested in what they had to say about a certain subject. So I think having a, a genuine curiosity about something is a big is a big key. Now, I've researched the memory question a lot because I wish my memory was a little bit better. Uh, but as far as memory goes, um, I read this book and I interviewed the author years ago. His name's A.J. Jacobs. And I, what A.J. Jacobs did, he read the entire Encyclopedia Britannica. And uh, the most frequent question that he got while he was reading the Encyclopedia Britannica was how much are you retaining? And so he wanted to remember a lot of the stuff that he was reading. And he ended up doing a lot of research into memory. And what I found about memory is that based on the stuff that he's written and my own research is memory is a game where the rich get richer, meaning uh, I know a lot about um, minor party politics in New York state, right? So if you throw something at me about the American Labor Party or the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party or the Fusion Party or the Independence Party or the Reform Party that I didn't know, I'm going to have a much easier time recalling that than maybe Matt Blaze would, who um, doesn't know about those things. Um, Meantime, you know, someone else who's very well-versed in mathematics, they're going to remember uh, an algebraic equation a lot easier than I will. So memory, it seems to be a game where you sort of, uh, for whatever reason, your brain plays to its own strengths. So um, I... I, uh, I think that um, that's the best answer that I could give, Tommy. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Bill is in Huntington. Hello, Bill. Uh, how you doing? Okay. Uh, I got a question about the uh, early Catholic saints. Can you handle something like that? Yeah. I mean, if I don't know it, I don't know it. But Okay. Which one? The earliest ones were Christian martyrs, right? Which one do you think died the, the most grisly death? Uh, Saint Jerome. Oh, are you familiar? I like, well, who do you like? I, I forget which one he was. I like uh, uh, Saint Catherine of Alexandria. You know, she got shredded on a wheel with iron spikes. Ooh, ooh. Uh, I mean, that sounds. You know, I can't say that I'm. Um, I can't say that I'm uh, an expert um, yeah. in in how a lot of those you know early uh, or early Catholic. Uh, Catholic saints. The other one was um, maybe St. Lawrence. You know, St. Lawrence got roasted basically on a rotisserie. And basically he said when he was being burned to death and he was being roasted over an open flame, he said, uh, this side's done. Turn me over and take a bite. Now, as devout as someone might be, to have that degree of self-awareness and sense of humor while you're being burned to death. Uh, that's something that's pretty rare. So uh, St. Lawrence, I'll, I'll, ch- I'll make my answer St. Lawrence. All right, two open lines if you want to jump on board. 800-848-9222. Larry is in Bethpage. Hello, Larry. Hey, Frank. So once again tonight, just a few minutes ago, you referenced your financial stability or instability. Now, to me, like, you have fame for not just since you've been on ABC over overnight. But you go back many years in this business. The first time you talked about your financial situations, I was shocked. 
with that in mind, though, you go out to dinner a lot, family, friends, you talk about it, lots of business appointments. On a scale of one to 100, how often do you pick up the check? Um, meaning percentage time, percentage-wise? Percentage. Um, it's a good question. You know, I you, it used to be pretty close to 100%. In fact, um, about seven years ago, I, there was an article, uh, you could still find it online, that the New York Post did uh, of me taking Curtis Lee with Ron Kuby and Richard Bay to lunch. And it did, they did a cute item. It was Richard, written by Richard Johnson about how, um, I, I picked up the check at that time. It used to be pretty close to a hundred percent of the time. However, um, w- w- since being with my wife, even before we were married, she has really caused me to curtail how often I'm picking up the check. So now I do it substantially less. So I think I do it a lot more than, you know, than than other people. And, you know, sometimes when you're with certain people, they don't let you pick up the check. Like, you know, when I'm out with John Katsimatidis, he won't even entertain me picking up the check. When I've been out with Arthur Idala, I'd say of our meals together, he'll buy 90% of our meals together. So how often do I pick up the check? Uh, obviously, if it's my wife, uh, you know, I pick it up 100%. But if it's with uh, another couple or other friends, I'll say maybe, maybe – I don't know. I'll say maybe. And again, it depends on what kind of meal we're talking about here. If we're talking about a a dinner or just drinks, if we're just if there's four of us together and we all have one drink, I'll almost always pick it up because usually I'm in a hurry and have to go. Uh, But if it's a dinner and, you know, the bill is four or five hundred dollars, then unless it's a special occasion, uh, then I'd say maybe 30 percent of the time. I'll say that eight hundred eight four eight. Nine two two two. Uh, we'll continue with your questions in a minute. We'll get through some in- email questions as well. Uh, and then I know a lot of you have been holding. We'll try and get to you in the order that you've been holding so that uh, anybody that's been holding for a while doesn't get penalized and gets their question answered. 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Have you ever met a girl that you tried to date? But a year to make love, she wanted you to wait. Let me tell you a story in my situation. I was talking to this girl from the U.S. nation. The way that I met her was on tour at a concert. She had long hair and a short miniskirt. I just got on stage dripping, pouring with sweat. I was walking through the crowd, and guess who I met? I whispered in her ear, come to the picture booth so I can ask you some questions to see if you're 100 proof. I asked her her name, she said blah, blah, blah. She had nine, ten pants and a very big bra. I took a couple of flicks and she was enthused. I said, how do you like the show? She said I was very amused. I started throwing bass, she started throwing back mid-range. But when I sprung the question, she acted kind of strange. Then when I asked, do you have a man? She tried to pretend. She said, no, I don't. I only have a Ah, uh, the great Biz Marquee. You got what I need. One of the great musical artists of any era. He we he lost him last year, unfortunately. I met him actually twice, and um, the first time I met him was actually in twenty twenty oh nine, I think, at uh, John Tobacco's fortieth birthday party. And ironically, John Tobacco is going to be on the show in the four o'clock hour talking cryptocurrency. Uh, he was a really nice guy, and and clearly, as you can hear from this song, a great talent. All right, um, 800-848-WABC. I want to go to a few of the folks that have been holding a while. Eddie is in Ocean County. Hello, Eddie. Hi, Frank. I had a question to ask you, but I'm, I borrowed my friend's phone, and he told me if I don't ask you a different question, 
then he's going to take the phone away from me. All so. right, got it. Whatever you want. He wants me to ask you about the Pennsylvania Senate race, um, what you make of this whole thing with Kathy Barnett shooting up in the polls, and seems like some of the Republican establishment is scared out of their pants. Yeah, well, I think she's going to be very formidable. Um, ultimately... I, uh, I, I look, could she win? Absolutely. But I think it's, um, if I were betting at this point, I think, um, I think that, uh, I would still bet on Dr. Oz. Now, my, keep in mind, my predictions are almost always wrong, but, uh, I think that, uh, Dr. Oz has two very important things going for him in the Republican, uh, primary. One, he's endorsed by Donald Trump. And Donald Trump's candidates this election cycle and previously have done very, very well in Republican primaries. The other thing that Dr. Oz has is governor's race. Yeah, well, that's one. Right. Um, The other thing that Dr. Oz has is um, is name recognition, which does count for a lot in a in an election, which is uh, a low turnout election. So if I were betting, I'd bet on Dr. Oz. But I could see I could see Kathy Barnett pulling out an upset there. Absolutely. Uh, and now let me try to squeeze in my question that I was going to ask you before my friend grabs the phone. Um, where were where were you when the planes hit the Twin Towers on nine eleven? I was. Uh, what cam- were you doing? Or the news? Yeah, I was. Uh, I was campaigning. It was. Um, it was primary day here in New York, and I had a very close friend. And thanks to the call, Eddie, I had a very close friend that was running for city council. Um, my friend Joe and I was campaigning for him. And uh, his uh, campaign manager had informed me that uh, that the planes had gone down. And sh- soon thereafter, we learned that the election was uh, was canceled. 800-848-WABC. Dave is in Westchester. Hello, Dave. Hey, how's it going, Frank? Can you hear me? I hear you perfectly, Dave. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Good to speak with you. Um, okay. So um, I kind of wanted to talk, but I, I realized I have to. We could talk, but. I realize that um, I have to ask a question, and I'd like to. Um, so, are you still there? I'm here, Dave. Okay. All right. It's a new phone, uh, a Bluetooth system I have here. My so, okay. So, so on COVID, um, uh, uh, COVID was very serious, right? So, so we we closed down schools, uh, independent businesses. Airports, we've had to wear masks, right? Malls everywhere. People, children <clears throat> have been virtually traumatized, okay, for possibly for life in some cases. Um, yet Biden <laughs> is opening the borders right, to millions of illegal immigrants, okay, flying them in from, from, uh, uh, from off-world, you know, from, from far-off lands, Afghanistan, and, and many other places, and placing them all over the country, okay? Um, and I guess my question is, uh, do, don't you see uh, clearly, and maybe you do, I don't know, uh, don't you see the, the agenda here, how clear it is that COVID has been uh, at a 0.5% uh, average mortality rate, by the way, 0.5, okay, uh, maximum, uh, is being used as a weapon against American people and namely individual liberty. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, look, I see why it looks like that, and thanks for the call, Dave. Uh, no, I, I don't think that COVID uh, 
Again, I don't think that COVID has been used as a political weapon. I think uh, politicians have taken advantage of COVID. But I think, honestly, and, you know, I didn't vote for President Biden, but the person that I think would most love to see COVID go away tomorrow and have zero new COVID cases tomorrow is Joe Biden. Because, one, he could take credit for that politically with his, you know, vaccine uh, program and so forth and uh, public awareness campaign. But also, uh, I think he thinks that that would mean good things for the economy and the supply chain crisis. So, no, I, I don't I've never subscribed to this theory that um, Democrats or any political party want the covid pandemic to continue indefinitely so that they can steal elections or uh, hinder people's civil liberties. I, I don't I don't buy that. I, I uh, I just don't. I'm sorry. Uh, 800-848-WABC. Sal Morrow writes, hey, Frank, how are you? My Friday night question is, what happened to Russell Bentley? Unless I missed the latest segment, why hasn't he been on to discuss the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Uh, well, it's a good question, Sal. One, you know, I try not to I'm trying not to overwhelm people with Ukraine related guests. Um, and two, if I have Ukraine related guests, I'm trying to showcase a wide variety of points of view. And if I uh, showcase guests that are questioning of this pro-NATO narrative and this uh, pro-Zelensky narrative, I'm trying to have people that may have a little bit more credibility with some of our listeners. People like Colonel Wilkerson, people like um, uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, uh, people like uh, Katrina Vanden Heuvel on the left and Ralph Nader on the left and Pat Buchanan on the right. So um, Russell Bentley, uh, I should have him back and, and I will. But we had him on twice recently, um, albeit not since the invasion began. Probably it's time that I have him on again. I'm trying not to do all Ukraine all the time. I mean, I'm interested in what's happening in Ukraine. But I try to do the kind of subjects that that everybody's interested in. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. Casey is in Stanford. Hello, Casey. Hey, Frank. How you doing? Great. We're talking about with all the social media and stuff, and I don't know what year you graduated in high school, but me and my friends say, oh, we're glad we're not in school now. What year or what decade do you think if you had a choice you would want to graduate high school. Graduate high school. Um, it's a great question. I'll, you know, uh, Jennifer from Boston once asked what era I would like to raise a, uh, ch- what decade I'd like to raise a child in. And I said the 50s. And I think I would pick the 50s for high school in the, um, in the, for the same reasons. It, again, I, I I realized that it was not an idyllic time and that especially if you were a, a black person living in the South, it was a, a very difficult time. But, I, I, you know, we're all a product of our environment and where we come from. I think I would pick the 50s. Eddie uh, in Virginia writes, Dear Frank, love your show. Yesterday morning, when you promoted the lunar eclipse happening at the time you were coming on the air at 1 a.m. and then were diplomatically corrected by Dr. Sky that the lunar eclipse is actually coming this Sunday night, what has been your most embarrassing moment live on the air? You know, that's a great question. That is a great question. Um, I was trying to think of that because you were kind enough to email it, which I like, and that it gives me a little time to think a bit about my answer. Most of my embarrassing moments on the air were um, not heard w- with me on the air. So there have been a couple of times 
where I had to pre-tape an interview. This hasn't happened in years. Where I had to pre-tape an interview either as a talk show host or as a producer. And for whatever reason, it didn't record. And that's really embarrassing. To be able to tell a guest, to have to tell a guest that you just spent 25 minutes interviewing. By the way, sorry, that interview didn't record. That's very tough, even though it's not really heard by the audience. When I was in college, I was doing a newscast or a sportscast, I don't remember which, and my nose started uh, gushing blood in the midst of the sportscast. Additionally, when I was uh, trying to break the Guinness World Record for longest live TV talk show marathon in 2005, my nose started bleeding in the midst of an interview with the amazing Kreskin. That was pretty embarrassing. But most of my embarrassing moments involve other people because I can deal with anything I do to embarrass myself but I don't want to embarrass anyone else. So there have been a handful of times as a producer where I, um, I I gave the host that I was working with incorrect information, and that um, that's very embarrassing. One time I told John Gambling that uh, Ed Klein had written the book Primary Colors. Now, and John mentions this in the context of interviewing Ed Klein because John figures he know I know what I'm talking about, and he goes with this. And Ed Klein did not write Primary Colors. Joe Klein wrote Primary Colors. And then it's interesting to hear kind of, you know, Ed Klein tried to politely correct John on that. And that was really embarrassing to me, even though the audience didn't know I had anything to do with that. 800-848-WABC. We'll squeeze in a few more here uh, before we before we run out of time. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Hi, Frank. I hope my question wins. I'll be fast. Why did Lana Turner's daughter, who was a kid, shoot and kill the reputed mobster Johnny Dio in Los Angeles in 1962? It was in the news, but they didn't tell the reason why she shot him. Yeah, I, you know, I know that I knew that she killed her mother's boyfriend, but I have to tell you, I don't know anything about that case. So I'm speaking from total ignorance. I'm be, I'll be happy to go back and research that a bit more, uh, but I don't know anything about that. Sorry. Um, all right. Uh, Anthony writes. Bah, 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 uh, oh, actually, we'll save that question for a little later. Bill in Westchester. Hello. Hello, Bill. Hi. Um I want to know background information on Stan the Man Stasiak, wrestler. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I don't know much about him, honestly. I know that he was a world champion and that he died about 30 years ago. He's a WWE Hall of Famer. And then I know his son uh, was also a a World Wrestling uh, Federation superstar. And I know that he was Canadian. Beyond that, I don't know anything about him. He was uh, from Buzzards Creek, Oregon. Oh, was he? Okay. I see. I always thought he was uh, born in Canada, but I, I, I stand corrected. See, so he goes to show you how little I do know about that. All right. Um, that is about it. Those of you that are on hold, um, if you want, we'll try and grandfather you in. No new questions, much like George H.W. Bush. No new questions. And um, I'll try not to violate that pledge like he did with taxes. Uh, Matt Blaze, Avery, and sometimes Philippe, do you have a, a person for the best question that we can give a prize to? I would say uh, Mandela in Harlem. Mandela in Harlem, who had the question about uh, next New Yorker for a musical. Correct. Mandela, call back and talk to Avery Brooks. We'll give you a prize or something. Uh, the rest of you, you're welcome to hold. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This 
is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Hey, uh, so there is a, a trend that is developing around the country, which I guess I should have seen coming because we are in sort of a sharing economy. But um, I didn't see coming. I don't see most, most things coming. And it has to do, you know, you're familiar with Airbnb, right? Airbnb is some of you have maybe even rented your homes on Airbnb. Some of you probably have stayed at uh, Airbnb and um, you you will be familiar with this. But uh, for those of you that have an Airbnb is a way for you to let's say you have an extra house or let's say you have a house that you're out of town for or you have an extra room, whatever the case may be. You can put your it's, it's basically air bed and breakfast. You can rent your house online and have somebody pay you for the privilege of staying there. And it's really a great um, technology and everything. It's really a great thing because everybody wins. If you don't want to stay in a hotel or if you have very specific requirements that you want a house for, you can go on Airbnb and find exactly what kind of house that you're looking for. If you have a house or a room that's not being used, you can rent it out. I keep trying to convince my wife of that that we need to buy a second house in Atlantic City. And then whenever I try to win her over to my side, I always say, oh, look, we could put it in an Airbnb and make some money. But that's been the rage for a while. Well, there's been something that has just exploded in recent years. Well, recent days, I should say. I don't even think it's a couple of years old. You ready for this? Pool sharing companies. Yeah, swimming pool sharing companies. You have these swimming pools that are for rent in people's homes. Pool sharing companies are betting that the market for opening up private homes to leisure activities extends beyond the pandemic. There are so far two, and there might end up being more, there are two rival services, Swimmy and Swimply. It's clever. And they operate just like Airbnb for swimming pools. Swimming pool owners rent out their backyard spaces for chunks of time, and the middleman companies get a small cut. Uh, Asher Weinberger, the co-founder of Swimply, told Axios, we see tremendous opportunity given the high rate of middle-class pool ownership. Swimply has big aspirations in Texas. You have the heat there and nobody minds driving distances. So the pandemic did come as horrible as it was with a bunch of silver linings um, for companies like Swimply, which had just gotten off the ground. And it's now gunning for a $1 billion valuation. According to Weinberger, demand went through the roof. 
But the ebbing of the pandemic, you know, it's funny. My sister-in-law, she and her husband are in the process of getting a swimming pool put in. Not only is it costing them a fortune because the price of putting in your own pool has gone up, I guess, because a lot of people want it. And I guess because of, um, you know, increased demand and uh, the supply chain problems and everything. But you're having a situation where they have to wait forever before they can have the groundbreaking because everyone's into these swimming pools now. And this is something that that really exploded during the pandemic. But the ebbing of the pandemic means that if you want to, you can make your children's birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese again instead of someone's pool. So other pooling or other pool sharing companies like Swimmy are also vying for guests and hosts. There's also competition from old fashioned public pools. My friend Joe Borelli, for instance, a big fan of the Great Kill Swim Club, takes his kids there all the time. He spends the whole summer there. So now what Swimmy and Swimply are doing is they want to set up ways that people can share other things, their tennis courts, their music studios, their woodworking shops, and their gourmet kitchens. Now, I don't uh, I don't have a swimming pool, and I my wife really wants a swimming pool. We don't really have the space in our backyard for it, though. But I, when we were house hunting, I was adamant that we should not get a swimming pool. Why? Because I grew up with a swimming pool. You know, my par- both my parents' houses have swimming pools, and I know the amount of work that goes into taking care of these swimming pools, not just the maintenance, but the, the opening it, the closing it. And I, I, honestly, I don't really love swimming that much. I mean, it's nice, okay, but I don't, we have two parents with pools that live 10 minutes from us. Do I really need to get our own pool? So uh, I'm curious, though, if any of you who have swimming pools would ever do this, if you would ever um, actually go and rent out your own swimming pool, why or why not? That's issue one. Issue two is I may be one of the few people out there that has never owned an iPod and will never own an iPod. Well, now maybe I will now that they're about to become a vintage piece of technology. Apple is about to pull the plug on the iPod after 20 years. So they're discontinuing the iPod after more than 20 years after the device became the face of portable music and really kickstarted Apple's evolution into one of the world's biggest companies. The iPod Touch, which is the only version of the portable music player that's still being sold, will be available till supplies last. And then after that, done. Gonzo. No more iPods. So I will never have owned an iPod. I got to tell you, I'm okay with it. Um, You know what's interesting, though? I don't think anyone uses TiVo anymore. But a lot of people still use the term TiVo when they talk about digital digitally recording something. So that's interesting. And the reason I find it interesting is because this radio show, if you don't get to hear it live, what do you do? You listen to the podcast. Now, it's called a podcast because these were digital files that were meant to be listened to on an iPod. 
But now that there's no more iPod, why do we still call it podcasts? If everyone's listening on their smartphone, what should we call it? Smartcasts? Phonecasts? I don't know. Did you ever own an iPod, Matt Place? I did. I had a, an older one, one of the original ones, and I've had it where I turned it on like a year or two ago, and it still worked, but there's a, tu- there's a screen, but it's not a touch screen. So I kept touching the screen thinking I'm going to click on something, but it doesn't click on anything because ah. I'm so used to the touch screen. It's the one where you had to move your finger around the circle. And... I see. I've never used one. Yeah. I have no idea. So what goes the way on. you would scroll was there'd be like a circle, and you you actually move your finger around the circle, left or right, and then in the middle you hit the button to click on whatever you wanted, whatever song you wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how mine worked. That's uh, that, this is from probably I don't know two thousand eight, two thousand nine, somewhere in that range. It was not the touch screen, but I kept trying to touch the screen. And as for the uh, pool thing. I would. I have a pool. Not in a million years. Why see, would I ever rent out my pool? Well, you're you're an odd duck. But why wouldn't you? <laughs> the liability. Right. Somebody well, getting hurt. Well, let's say this company Swimply or Swimmy. Let's say they would indemnify you. I, I wouldn't trust it. I just would not trust it that I would absolutely, if somebody got hurt, if they went on the diving board and it snapped or something happened running around the pool, kids in my house, that they're going to somehow find it my fault. That At my house, no matter what these pool companies that are renting these things out say, there is no way I would ever do it. Besides the fact, yeah, I don't want anybody in my backyard. Yeah, well, we, you, I, that goes without saying. All right, in your case, 800-848-WABC, if you want to comment on either the new trend towards renting your swimming pool, this is something you'd ever do, 800-848-9222, or the demise of the iPod. Are you sorry to see it go? Maybe now I'll get into it. Now that it's now a retro piece of technology, on par with the beeper and laser disc and um, the typewriter. Uh, maybe I'll get into it now. We'll see. 800-848-WABC. Pete is on Staten Island. Hello, Pete. Hi, Frank. Good evening. I'm good morning. Yeah, about the pools. Uh, I've been very lucky through this uh, pandemic and everything. My friends, the Kosh, they have a saltwater pool. And I'm very close friends with them. They have given me a key to their house and a key to the gate to the pool. And Renee and I have spent beautiful days in that pool during the summer where you couldn't go anywhere and everything else. But the thing is, uh, the insurance, you know, I went to a hotel the Morrison in Morrison, New Jersey, for a wedding, and uh, there was a pool. So I went to go in the pool. They told me at the desk that I had to pay a $50 instant incident uh, payment. So I said, for what? In case you get hurt in the pool. So I went along with it, and they paid it, and then after nothing happened, they refunded it back to my credit card. But it was very unusual. I was kind of a little ticked off about it, paying $50 more after I paid for a room in a hotel. So that's the thing. And, you well, know, you got the money back, though. You careful. got the money back. Yeah, I got it. I got it back, but I didn't expect it back because when they said it's an incidental thing, you know, and I paid it. And then on my credit card, about three days later, the money appeared. So I called them and they said, oh, we just hold it in case something happens. Right. Well, in fairness, a lot of hotels do do things like that for uh, all sorts of uh, incidentals. Uh, Thank you, Pete. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. In a minute, we're going to talk with Matt Richtel 
he's got a new book out. He's one of my favorite writers, and I've been reading this new book, and it's terrific. Uh, but uh, if you have comments about what we're talking about, give me a call. Al is in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Hey, good morning. Uh, I don't really have so much on the pool. Uh, I was just talking before about the last segment. I was a holdover. I had wanted to know, like, uh, what would you be your ideal? Like, you had to have a knock one out of the park, a perfect show, like the five or six best guests for one night. And what kind of uh, five or six musicians, you know, for the uh, bumper music? Oh, that's a good question, Al. Um, A perfect show is a good question. I don't know that there's any such thing. But in my case, you know, one of the things that I always strive for, I'm going to touch upon this, I think, in a minute when we talk creativity. But one of the things that I really do strive for every day, and maybe some days I'm more successful than others, is I try to do something different, right? I love for people to tune into this show and have no idea what to expect, or even if they know what to expect, to deliver what they expect in a very bizarre, offbeat, and unusual way, you know? So um, a, a perfect show would be a show that is filled with unpredictability, where people don't know what I'm going to say, where we have a a bunch of guests that, uh, that are, that are a little, that that are, that are new. Um, if, if, you know, I like usually one long form interview and then maybe one other shorter interview in terms of music, you know, I'm a sucker for all my favorites, you know, um, you know, Johnny Cash, Elvis, Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, Fits in the Tantrums, um, Ed Sharp That's and the cool. mag- well, neg- Magnetic well, Zeros, you know. Well, one other question is, if you could do a live format for that night, like Ella Joe Franklin, where one guest comes on, right, you might have time with him, and then somebody else comes on, and then, you know, you know what I'm trying to say? Would you do that format? You think you could, would, would you convince where, enough uh, to where, at that late of an hour? Where, where folks stick around for the whole show, you mean? Yeah, they kind of like add on and, you know, comment, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I I try to do that, you know, when we do our midnight panel hours. But, yes, I absolutely would love to do something like that. Thank you, Al. I have to break uh, because uh, we're going to talk with Matt Richtel about his new book, Inspiration. It's all about creativity. And, uh, you know, he's written, just so happens, we were talking about the problem with children and teens and their mental health crisis. He's now written a series of articles on that very subject. So I'm going to get into that with him as well. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I often get asked, what's the most difficult thing about being on the radio from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. every morning? And most people assume that it's the hours. And look, the hours can be tough, but once you kind of get used to being nocturnal, there's something kind of charming about it, something kind of fun about it. But what I always tell people the most challenging aspect of this job is, is something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about. It's how do you fill four hours with creative creative, original, compelling content, not regurgitating the same things that you hear on every other radio station, 18 hours a day, but something different that's going to want to make people stay awake, turn up the volume and talk about what they heard the next day. And that's why I have become obsessed with the cause of creativity. How do you get inspired to do something different and to do something original? And I literally lie awake, not at night, but during the day, thinking about this stuff, wondering 
how can I come up with something that's different, that's new, so that that's innovative? You know this if you listen to this show. Sometimes I'll, I'll outsource ideas to you guys, asking for different ideas about this or that or things that have never been done on the radio, and you've been a great resource. But I was really, really interested in the latest book by Matt Richtel. Now, I've been a fan of Matt Richtel ever since his uh, last book, An Elegant Defense, came out, and I learned a great deal about disease and about the immune system in that book, and it actually allowed me to occasionally sound like I knew what I was talking about during the whole COVID pandemic. But this latest book inspired Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul is something that is right up my alley, and I'm very, very pleased to welcome back Matt Richtel, veteran New York Times reporter and a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, and again, his latest book is inspired, and it's also pretty inspiring. Matt, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you, Frank. Does veteran mean old? Uh, yes. Yes, it does. Yes, it okay, does. Okay, it does. I am an old. I, I finally graduated into that. I mean, you go from, you go from like, a, a, you know, like fledgling new New York Times reporter, and then the next <laughs> moment, you know, you're old. That's you know, me. Well, hey, we're happy to have you. You know, they say there's three stages of life. There's uh, there's who's Matt Richtel, then it's uh, get me Matt Richtel, then it's get me a young Matt Richtel, and then it's <laughs> then it's then it's who's Matt Richtel. So you're still at the at the phase in life where you're at get me Matt Richtel. That, uh, that that that's a perfect opening to tell you a, a funny story about. So I I was. Uh, when I started out writing this book about uh, create, there's so many funny stories that happen in the course of writing this book, or interesting stories that creators told me. Or, but but in the, early in the book, I'm playing basketball out front of my house with my son, who's who was 11. He's now 13, and I said I'm going to interview Bono uh, for for this book about creativity. And he goes, Bono, is that a him or a her? <laughs> and. and and I, it, 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 there's so much to talk about creativity, but one of the things to understand is exactly what you just said. Like, it's not the same as fame or fortune. Sometimes we confuse those things. Like, you must be creative. You made a lot of money doing something. Not true at all. In fact, we forget a lot of these people over time. Uh, th- this is true. You know, years ago in New York, the most famous DJ there was was named Martin Block. These days, uh, there's it's tough finding someone to, know, to that's heard of Martin Block. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you about the new book, but I've really been interested in the series of articles that you've been doing in The Times over pediatric mental health. And uh, this yeah. is something that we've been chronicling on the radio. And I got a lot of great feedback from callers and a lot of different ideas about why children and teens are experiencing such a problem, such a crisis, quite frankly, when it comes to mental health. Uh, Before we get into the causes and maybe even the possible solutions, explain to folks how grave the situation is. What has the National Academy of Pediatrics said about how pervasive this problem is? And how how big of a problem is mental health among children and teens? Yeah, so just to just to Back to you, the the big picture that for for listeners who are wondering how do we just go from creativity to adolescent mental health, it just so happens that this is one of those rare moments for a a long-form journalist where I had a book come out and a series come out for the New York Times that I've spent 18 months doing. So if your head's spinning, my head's spinning. One is uh, really about hope and creativity, Mm. but the other thing, what is going on with this spike in adolescent mental health, and I will 
uh, let me let me answer your question. Um, it, since about 2007, suicide among people 10 to 24 years old has gone up about 60 percent, and we've seen related rise over roughly the same period in people with self-harm around that age showing up in emergency departments. It gets a little tougher, Frank, to measure the rise in anxiety and depression for the simple reason that we weren't measuring those things as, as easily before, and language has changed. So that what one might have called a bad mood uh, some time ago is now increasingly self-identified as anxiety and depression. Not that it's not real, but we've, we've changed how we look at Things. Well, Nonetheless, well, here's let, the upshot. Well, well let me ask it's you to pause. Crisis. Let me ask you to pause Sorry, there, actually, because that's something a lot of our listeners brought up the other day when we when we first started talking about that. They said, "Look, uh, things are no worse now among young people. It's just that we now have disorders and terminologies to refer to the turmoil that young people have always gone through. Is it actually worse now, or are we just finding new ways to identify problems that were?" already existing among young folks? The short answer is yes, both things are true, that we have unmasked some things that have been there before, but some of those things are intensifying. And the people who look at this very closely at the numbers will say uh, we are seeing the age come down where people are experiencing serious depression and anxiety, and there's no denying the suicide numbers. But I want to... could I, can I give a little more context please, please, for, this, please. for those yes, people asking please. that question? What really set me on this journey, understanding, Frank, what is going on with adolescent mental health, was not that mental health issues were on the rise. We knew that 18 months ago when I started to look into this. It was this more fundamental question. When I, you already mentioned that I'm veteran, old. When I was, when I was a, a teen in the late 80s in Colorado, what public health worried about were five things binge drinking, drunk driving injury and death, teen pregnancy, cigarettes, and illicit drugs. And to a one, Frank, they have fallen. At the very time, we've seen a rise of these internalized harms. So really what's at the heart of this is a question, why has the risk to adolescence shifted? That's really what we're exploring right now. It's not exclusively a mental health issue. It's a generational Mm. shift in risk. Uh, so let's talk about the the why, uh, the causes of the problem that young people are experiencing, even if it is, as you termed it, a generational shift in risk. This didn't just begin with the pandemic, did it? This was a problem nope. before the pandemic. Amen. Um, that is it, among the among the reasons I spent uh, was given so much time by the Times to explore this was that the science is very complicated. Mm. And to put a fine point on it. The pandemic did not cause this full stop. These trends predate it. I'm going to get into, will you, will you permit a little neurobiology uh, happily, and, and, happily. Uh, to help explain what's going on here? Happily, yes. Okay, so since, first of all, let's talk about what adolescence is. You go back 150 years or whatever it is, adolescent looks like this. You hit puberty, Frank, not you specifically. <laughs> you people hit puberty. Uh, they and then and then their family said, "You got some options. You want to work in the farm or the factory, and who do you want to marry?" Here's two options. It was a short period with very little choice. Are you with me so far? I'm with you. Okay. Now, 
the economy has gotten very complicated. It's much different now. And puberty is become disentangled from adolescence in that puberty is hitting a lot earlier. I'm going to put puberty to the side for a second and just talk about adolescence. In a very complicated economy, instead of going from uh, you hit puberty, farmer factory, marry this person or this person, you go through a prolonged training period in order to participate in a complicated economy. And during that period, you're faced with a lot of options and choices and identity seeking. Adolescence arguably goes from 10 to 25 or something like that, longer than it's ever been. That's a period that's very complicated, much more so than it has been in the past. Now, I want to bring in puberty. I know I'm going on so long, so you've got to interrupt me at any time, mm-hmm. Frank. Mm-hmm. No, keep going. I'm not going to Okay, keep it. going. Look, puberty, let's take the year 1900 just to pick one out. For girls, puberty was about 14. Now it's about 12. It's been falling consistently. We don't exactly know why, but very likely it has something to do, at least in part, with nutrition. More nutrition signals to the bodies of boys and girls that they are ready to reproduce. Here's what happens during puberty. You think of it as having to do with, you know, the, the loins, the nether regions, a lot of the actions in the brain. And when you hit puberty, it stimulates you to be hyper aware of social and hierarchical information. So now you hit puberty a little bit earlier, and all of a sudden, in this era in particular, in this era, Frank, there is so much social and hierarchical information. It's not just social media. It's competitive information about schools. It's all the news, good and bad, that you hear. It's your parents worried about a world that actually may not be as problematic as many make it out to be. And you're suddenly attuned to it. But guess what? Puberty hit earlier. The rest of your brain didn't develop any faster. Mm. So now you're having a heck of a time making sense of it in a very complicated world. It's so interesting because I posed the same question to our listeners, even touching upon some of the things that you had written in your articles. And there were all sorts of different theories as to what the cause of this were. Um, the, the, the most pervasive was a sense of social isolation, that uh, children and teens yes. were moving towards their screens rather than interacting with other people in real life. Other people brought up things like uh, the decline in religion. Other people brought things like uh, stop uh, blaming eight-year-olds for slavery. You name a cause uh, and people brought it up. But one of the things that I didn't hear was the physical dimension that you're mentioning. You you actually say, and I guess this is backed up by uh, some other scientists, that the physical changes in children and teens, their their mental changes are not keeping up with that at a rate that historically their peers have kept up with. Yes. And the world wasn't as complicated. And to those, everybody's, all those theories, except for the, the slavery one doesn't really <laughs> resonate with anything I've heard. But, the, but I want to speak to the, the other ones that your callers brought up. There's a lot of good intuition on this. And I just want to explain the science around it. Say, for instance, those who said, you know, they're not going to church or they're not. Um, I can't remember what the uh, there well, was the basically that, that was the most popular. That was the most popular answer is too much screen time, not enough okay. time so interacting me, with humans. Let me hit on that science very quickly. The, the screen time science is very conflicted. If you ask the question, does social media per se cause this cause these problems? The, the science is not at all clear that, say, Facebook or Instagram or one of these sites causes that. But what the science also seems to suggest is that rather than this being about the phone or a social media site, 
some very crucial parts of lifestyle have been displaced by screen time. Sleep is down. Exercise is down. In-person time is down. Church, and I don't mean church as a religious function. Right, but as a social one. function of hanging out with other people Mm -hmm. is down. These are pastoral experiences relative to sitting in front of the screen that actually allowed the brain to process information more slowly. There was less coming at you and more time spent processing. Am I making sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. So in that respect, many of your make some really, really good points. It, when we talk about the causes, uh, that's one thing, and I guess there are varying uh, varying theories and uh, backed up by all sorts of different evidence. But what's the solution? What do the experts say is the best way for families, for teachers, for uh, relatives, for whomever, the media, coaches, to help young people get out of a crisis mentality? Well, that's a great question, and I'm going to write about this soon, Frank, and I'm not going to give it all away here, partly because I haven't finished my reporting. But but I do want to say that there are some methodologies that are gaining steam that essentially – and I I love how you pose the question, Frank – is that there are methodologies gaining steam that essentially help young people reframe how catastrophic they're seeing the world. And essentially what's happening in a lot of these situations is young people are seeing something bad and taking it to the nth degree because their brains aren't developed enough and haven't had enough processing to make sense of these very – these questions that stimulate a pubescent mind. Am I making sense there? Yes, absolutely. And what you'll hear about – I encourage readers, if they don't know about things like CBT – Cognitive behavioral therapy, it sounds fancy. It's really not. It's a reframing of how people see potentially catastrophic situations. DBT, uh, uh, um, dialective behavioral therapy. Here's the thing. Remember I mentioned that risk has changed? Right. Earlier on? Mm -hmm. Our medical systems have effectively not kept up because this really snuck up on us. And we weren't prepared to rethink the kind of risk young people are facing. There's a way in which I can spin this as good news. And the good news is, let's just say some of this we've unmasked that was already there, and some of this is intensified. If we begin to understand the problem and give young people coping skills, which we are capable of doing, we might actually have a happier country, a more civil civil country, and more well-adjusted adults, but we got to put the systems in place to do it. I love it. Uh, that That is, talk about finding a silver lining in a in a tough subject. Uh, that is a great way to look at it. We're talking with Matt Rickdahl. He's a New York Times reporter. Uh, his latest book is Inspired, Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul. Last book, uh, last question about this, and I want to focus on the book. How, prevalence, um, how prevalent is the is the notion of the suicidal teenager. You've written about how a lot of these folks have ended up in emergency rooms due to suicidal uh, suicide attempts, essentially. How common is that right now? Well, I, t- I gave you the number um, uh, of the 60% increase, um, and I don't. I, I, I actually can't remember, Frank, off the top of my head, the, um, the raw prevalence numbers of suicidality. Um, I will say this. Our reporting has shown that on any given night, between several hundred and up to 5,000 
young people are staying in emergency rooms because they are unsafe to go home. Mm. So those are big, big numbers. And emergency rooms are distraught because they're not really equipped to treat young people with that. Those are big numbers. I'm not talking about, you know, every kid around the corner from you by any stretch. What I am saying is there is distress being experienced in no small amount by this generation, and we just have to grapple with what to do about it because we can do something about it. Uh, really interesting. All right, so let's talk about the book Inspired. What inspired you to write it? Uh, you've been writing about health care and related issues for, for years. Why focus on the idea of creativity? What was your, your inspiration on writing this? Okay, are you, are you guys ready? Ready for some hopeful good news? Oh, yeah. I don't know if I can jerk jerk the reader, listeners' heads around <laughs> like this so fast. All right. Well, I'll I'll make this break by telling you a story about Charles Schultz that um, kind of gets into why I want to understand the science of creativity. It's an experience that I suspect you've had, Frank. Lots of creative people have had. Lots of people would like to have. So um, early on in my own creative journey, after I had a bit of a collapse and and discovered my voice, I got privileged enough to, to write a syndicated comic strip. And my editor was the editor of Peanuts. Her name was Amy. I said, Amy, you got to tell me a Charles Schultz story. This is the story she told me. She said, she said, she, I guess Sparky was what his intimates called him. She called him Sparky. She said, Sparky would wake up in the morning and say, oh my God, I have got the idea for the perfect comic strip. This is it. This is the one. And he would set about writing in a kind of state of thrall. And the next morning, he'd wake up and look at his comic strip, and he'd go, eh, I don't know. It was close, but not quite there. Wait a second. I've got it. I've got an idea for a new comic strip. This is the one. And I have experienced that in a number of ways in my own life, through books, through the series I get inspired to do for the Times, through some really bad music that uh, I'm happy to force on you guys, but I won't. <laughs> um, and I wanted to understand what is inspiration where does it come from? What is creativity that follows from it? And man, did I learn a lot of stuff, Frank, because when I really go down a rabbit hole, I go all oh, yeah. the way down. And soup to nuts, I learned what creativity was. Well, and you interviewed uh, some of the greatest creators across so many different disciplines. And uh, the interviews are, are just terrific. Before we get into the specifics of who said what, let's talk about general trends when it comes to creativity. What do Yo-Yo Ma, for instance, the musician, the famous cellist, and the creator of the TV show Deadwood have in common? Yeah, what they have in common is something extremely specific, and it's a little bit of what um, uh, what Einstein called intelligence having fun. What they have in common is the ability to allow themselves to um, produce, sorry, to recognize ideas in an unfiltered way and express them without knowing whether they're going to succeed. They, are, they have a certain faith that that feeling of excitement that pours out of them has a reason to exist, and they do not need to censor themselves. So if, I, if I'm uh, in the process of being creative, does that mean, based on the, the trends that you identified and these folks across all these different disciplines, that I'm not afraid to tell people about some wacky idea I have, even if th that risks ridicule, for instance? 
Yeah, I mean, it, I'll, I'll even go further than that, Frank. When you really um, start to feel it, far from being afraid to tell people, you are thrilled to tell them. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I suspect there are people who, at certain times of the day, that will not take my calls because they know <laughs> there's Matt with an idea. And one of the interesting things about um, people who who really tap into their creativity, I'll illustrate with a story of Einstein that I was told by a scholar who studies uh, the great creators. He, uh, he, <laughs> he goes to a friend. He says, I've got it. I figured out the unified field theory. And his colleague or friend, whatever it was, says, well, Albert, that's great. But under that theory, the universe can't exist. And the thing that happens with people who tap into this feeling of inspiration is it's more about quantity than quality. Many of the great uh, people, and I don't, by the way, I should be really clear. When I say creators, again, it's not fame or fortune. It's people who give themselves permission. Surely you know, Frank, and I'm sure there's a lot of listeners on this show who are those wonderful entrepreneurial types who keep coming up with ideas, you know, and they tell their husband or wife, oh, this we got to do. We need a magnet that's scratch and sniff. We got to do it. The world needs that. They're not afraid to tell somebody. Maybe they should be. (laughs) Talking with Matt Richtel, his newest book is Inspiration. Now, um, I hate to make this, you know, about me or or selfishly directed, but what advice do you have for me and by extension, everybody that's listening when I'm doing this show or when anybody is doing whatever they're doing when it comes to art, when it comes to the workplace, when it comes to seeking to be in a creative mode? What can I do, say, think or act like in order to um, have the creative spigots flowing in my own brain when I prepare this show? for instance well you you set off an alarm bell for me earlier frank when you said you stay up at night thinking about it i'm, I'm gonna give you some science uh I'm gonna, can i throw down some more please science? come on lay it on me down? lay it on me matt so uh i think this was done at the university of california at santa barbara and they ask a bunch of really creative physicists and writers and artists to write down what they're doing when they come up with their big idea over a period of time i don't know weeks months whatever 20 percent of the time when they come up with an idea that's really powerful for them, they are doing something else mundane altogether. They are not thinking about solving the problem that they either wanted to solve or maybe didn't realize that they wanted to solve. And the, 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 the scholar behind that um, says to me, how many things can you name where 20% of the time you're the very best at it when you're not trying? Mm. What, what, I, I'm, it, it's not alone enough to allow yourself to have your mind wander or to have faith that those processes will take place. But one of the things that may not work is focusing entirely on solution, solution, mm-hmm. idea, 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 idea. You know, Gary Trudeau, uh, the, the creator of Doonesbury, he says, for me, uh, it's always in the shower. His wife, Jane Polly, keeps a piece of paper same. by her bed. What's that? No, say I had to install a pad in the shower because that's where I found all my uh, ideas going down the drain. Right. So, okay, great. So you start to have these ideas. But I want to hit on something else because that sounds, I don't know, it sounds a little trite for me to say, don't try. There's more to it than that. And the more to it than that is to actually recognize what 
mind-wandering or what it feels like when the ideas start to percolate and you don't shut them down. So I want to give you a little bit of an exercise, and I'll do it from personal experience, but then I'll ask you yours, okay? So before, when I was a kid, before I went to bed at night, I used to have these funky fantasies. Not, we're not getting into the filthy fantasies. Just, these are just like things I would think about that would put me to sleep. One of them was I dreamed of – not dreamed. I would think about going down an aisle – of a sporting goods store and putting all the the sports equipment that I couldn't re- my family couldn't really afford and piling up my cart. And I would think about that and just tell myself that story. I have others that I used to go back to. Do, are there any that you ever use like that? Um well, uh, I I'm trying to think uh, there there are. Yeah, I mean when I um you know when I uh buy a lottery ticket for instance, I have to yes. plan out how I'm going to spend all of the money when when I buy the lottery ticket. I have to go in some detail about what I'm giving to charity, what investments I'm going to make, what family members I'm going to give the money to. Sure. Very involved, very in-depth. Okay. So really, really a vital thing for people to recognize. You may not know it, Frank, but you are a writer writing a book in that moment. And I think I find a lot of people don't really understand when I say let your mind wander in an unfiltered way. They don't really understand what I mean. The reason I mention the going to bed example is because it's a time we don't really censor ourselves. We don't feel like we owe that time to anybody. Mm. We don't feel like we have to worry. We don't feel like we're judging those thoughts. When I talk about drawing on your subconscious, which I haven't talked about at all, so fair enough, you can point that out. But I'm alluding to the idea of drawing ideas from your subconscious. You have to be willing to look at those in an unfiltered way and and an unjudgmental way. And that takes both some practice um, and some permission. And the permission is, hey, I'm not exactly wasting time, but I'm not exactly being productive here either. So um, does that mean I should try to go to sleep earlier? So, so, so well, it that means I... that when you're when, – remember you said – now, I, could, I may have misheard right. you because clearly I'm not a very good listener. I'm doing a lot of yakking. <laughs> but when you were when – didn't you say you lay in bed thinking about absolutely. ways to make the show yes, more creative? Absolutely, every day. I would argue that some of that's probably productive and some of it is a pretty good way to like think – and be rigid instead mm. of feeling. Understood. Understood. Uh, yeah. No. Um, uh, well, I think that's uh, so. Th- I guess the you know it's sort of like when you're trying to meet somebody to be in a relationship with. They say it's always a lot easier to do that once you stop trying to meet somebody, and then you end up meeting folks. I guess that's uh, it's the same way. You can't try flip a switch in your brain and say I'm going to be creative now. And and more than that is that when you are willing something, it's often taking the really analytical parts of your brain, and those are a different part of the brain than the parts in the subconscious that sort of spit out ideas that get connected to each other and uh, and magnetize, and, you know, maybe you're sitting there, I mean, it sounds magical, right? You're sitting there thinking about uh, your lottery ticket thing, and all of a sudden there's an idea for a show, and you have mm. no idea where it came from. Mm. But the place it came from wasn't the analytical part of your brain focusing on the question. It was the flow part of your brain letting a bunch of ideas percolate that you weren't trying to control. 
It makes a lot of sense to me. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Matt Richtel. Um, we're not even scratching the surface of his new book, Inspired. It's all about understanding creativity, a journey through art, science, and the soul. There's musicians interviewed for it, scientists, writers, uh, just about any type of creative field that you can imagine. Um, Matt does a great job in terms of delving into the creative process itself. What was interesting to me was the role that the COVID pandemic and the shutdown played in the collective creativity of the American or even worldwide consciousness. A lot of folks would would figure, all right, we're stuck home all day. We're watching 18 hours of Netflix every day. We're not necessarily being inspired by conversations at the water cooler at the office. A lot of folks would think that that would retard uh, the creative uh, juices in our brain. That wasn't necessarily the case, was it? No, I, I'm gonna. I want to say that I think this is, uh, and I make the case in the book that um, both before COVID, but in, especially intensified by it, we are in um, among the most creative periods in human history. Um, and I, I'm gonna, I'll go further. This is the most creative period in human history. And just to support, I, I have data in the book to support that through patents and patents across borders. But just to give you a sense of why I think that, and then hit on COVID specifically. The research shows that we have always had these enclaves of creativity, Jerusalem, Florence, Harlem, uh, Hollywood. You know, you can go down the list and find these spots. You know what was going on in those places was partly it was a whole bunch of people, a relatively big population, thinking about similar issues. Mm. So you saw cooperation, collaboration, you saw competition, and really interesting ideas bubbled up out of the surface. Well, you know, right now, thanks to technology, it is the new Jerusalem every place. You want to talk to somebody about some idea, you want to connect to uh, 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 a piece of information, you want to have a collaborator who lives in, you know, X, Y, or Z, you got it. So this is a really creative period. But in COVID in particular, I think two things happened that, that illustrate different ways creativity emerges. One was the sheer terror of COVID that led to a lot of innovation on the front of, of vaccines and so on and so forth. But the other way is that our lives got a little quieter, Frank. And I think, uh, I think a lot of people and a lot of people I've talked to started to ask, how do I want to spend my time? I've got a little bit of silence here. I'm walking. I'm hanging out with my family. I'm thinking. I'm percolating. I'm mind-wandering. And you start to see resignations, the great resignation, and I don't know how many of those people are out doing something creative or something different or something entrepreneurial, but I think it's born in part out of that period of reflection and quietness and lack of distraction of the pace of the world that dictated us before. Wow. Uh, now, that's uh, uh, very, very interesting. And uh, I know you've already been very generous with uh, with your time. But one thing that I have to get you to clear up uh, is the difference or the similarity between creativity and intelligence. Is that yes. the same thing? Is creativity no. the same as intelligence? Straighten us out. No, no. Big no, giant no. Um, great fallacy that there are creative geniuses, that there's these isolated creative geniuses. 
Um, I blame Hollywood, and I specifically blame Hollywood writers who secretly want to be these people. That's my theory about how that mythology got created. But the, re- the research will show that, um, that if you have average intelligence, it is more than sufficient to be wildly creative. And in fact, if you get, not that IQ is the measure of intelligence, but if you get into high IQ areas like above 147 or something, it can actually inhibit creativity. Yeah. Here's the thing. Having enough intelligence to understand how systems work such that you can participate in them, but enough openness to look for other and new ways to, to, uh, to allow yourself to be receptive to new ways of doing things is all you need. Uh, it's all there in the, in the book, as they say. And is creativity something that can be, if not learned, trained? Can we train our brains to act in a yes. more creative uh, fashion yes. other than just lowering our inhibitions about um, being enthusiastic about sharing what might be unorthodox ideas? Yes, I think you can, but I, I do think it takes some real recognition of a few things. One, what gets in the way of our creativity, and that is a, a bunch of fear, and you can see the research about that. But I do think you have to actually um, train yourself to, uh, uh, to allow ideas to percolate. And that's not by saying it. You really have to will yourself to have the permission to, to let ideas in that might seem noxious to you, uh, to feel the humility of, of, of the potential that your ideas may be silly, and, and then you've got to, 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 to write down and try to seize those ideas. That, that's a function that can be trained, but the truth is that a lot of the way we're trained as children beats that out of us. And it beats us out mm. of it for, for in, on, on its face for a good reason. But I don't want to go on too long, so I'm not sure whether I should do this or not. Uh, but yeah, you know, I'm, you've got me hooked, so I have to, have to ask you to finish. Yeah, tell me. Okay, so look. I raised two kids. You, you know, everybody who's ever been a parent or a kid knows these phrases. Don't run in the street. Mm-hmm. Don't pick your nose and eat it. Uh, don't stay on your side of the, the back seat. Don't eat that off the floor. We give our kids lots and lots and lots of rules for good reason to keep them alive. And there's a, there's a study done in the late 50s and the early 60s that identified the fourth grade slump. And the fourth grade slump is the fact that sometime around fourth grade, young people get less creative. They stop generating as many ideas. It's around that time, subsequent research has shown, coupled with the research of the time, that young people really start to think about saying no first. They ask, what is the rule, not what is the other idea? What is my imagination, Shay? Mm. And that, that can be reinforced by testing and other things. It's hard to retrain your brain, Frank, to not say first, what's the reason I shouldn't try something new? Because there's a lot of training in us about why we should. Now, I'm not suggesting that everybody colors out the lines and goes off the rails. That You can have both. In fact, the best creations are a little bit new and a lot of what's old. So it 
doesn't mean rejecting all the old rules. It means understanding that you've been programmed to some extent that way, and you have the freedom to add something new to it and still not be a bad person. Uh, on that note, we have to uh, end it there. Matt Richtel, I always, um, and I'm not just saying this because it goes with the, uh, the premise of your book, I really always feel so energized and inspired whenever we speak. And, um, you know, I, I really am glad you're in on the printed page instead of on the radio because you're the last person I'd ever want to be competing with. You have such a great way of uh, telling stories with words and with sounds, and uh, your enthusiasm is always infectious. Matt Richtel, thanks so much. Good luck with Frank, the book. I hope we can talk pleasure, again. Really, I'll, I'll see you in three years when we do another one. <laughs> Hopefully, I we promise can... I won't compete. I'm not interested. <laughs> Hopefully, we can do it uh, more quickly than that. Matt Richtel, the book is inspired. Check it out. Yeah, I think you're going to like it a great deal. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is Careless Whisper by Seether. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on the show, join the Facebook group. I post the musical selections there right after the show. And um, it's also meant to be a forum for discussing the subjects that uh, that we cover on the show. If you say, oh, that Frank Morano's so boring or uh, so dumb or so unwitty or, uh, hey, you know, I, li- I like that guest Frank had on. I wish he'd asked him about that. The place to make all those comments is the Facebook group. We try to get conversations going about the show. Uh, so if you're on Facebook, just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. And uh, you can participate on that. As of now, I am still almost completely unbooked for Saturday. Uh, we're still working on adding our son to our bank account so that we can deposit some of the checks that were written to him for his communion. So we have an appointment at another branch at another bank, 1030 in the morning on Saturday. So I get to watch Smirconish. Maybe we'll get to have a nice breakfast, 10 o'clock, and then come 1030, we uh, we get to go to the bank. And then I'm largely free for the uh, the rest of the day. Uh, my you know, we, we we don't have central air in our house, so we've been installing. We have these uh, these air conditioning units, these window units. So my father and I, he was kind enough to come over. He's very handy. I am not. He he and I installed two of our five air conditioning units, but we installed the two most difficult ones. Um, I'm going to work this weekend on trying to install the other three. We'll see how that goes. We'll see, because before you know it, you know. Air conditioning season will be here. Coming up in uh, just a minute, I'll get to your calls, 800-848-9222. we got denunciations coming up. And then we'll talk cryptocurrency. A lot to get to. And uh, hopefully you'll be a big part of it. 1-800-848-WABC on Facebook at facebook.com slash Morano fan. And um, a lot of other stuff to get to as well. How we're going to get to it all in only two hours, I don't know. We're going to do the best we can. 
Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You can email me as well, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thanks for tuning in. Well, it's that time of the week, the time for me to call about, call out the people that need calling out. It is time for me to denounce those that need denouncing. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents Denunciation. This is a painful one. Uh, I am going to have to denounce my third favorite meal, maybe my fourth, if you're... If, we're including brunch, but uh, I am going to have to denounce dinner. That's right. I go out to dinner, uh, you know, regularly, more so when we we didn't have a child. Uh, but I enjoy going out to restaurants. And uh, while dinner is not as fun as brunch for me, dinner's still pretty fun. And now researchers from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center say, say are, they're saying that Eating primarily during the day instead of at night could be the key to a longer life. They are saying it's not just what you consume, but when. Their study finds that cutting down on fatty and sugary foods and having meals at the right time increased the longevity of mice by 35%. Experiments found that the body clock's daily rhythm play a big part in the benefits of a healthy diet. Rodents are nocturnal animals, like me, that are most active in the dark. Meanwhile, humans are genuinely, generally livelier during the day. With that in mind, the study authors say people should restrict their dining to the most active hours of the day. So, look, obviously this is going to require further study, but I found this to be just awful news. Uh, so until there is further study that says something different, I do denounce you, dinner. I must also denounce the Jewish Heritage Museum. Um, apparently, they are basically calling out Governor Ron DeSantis. Now, since this story came out a week or so ago, there has been uh, an update on this, and they're claiming this is not true, but it seems to me that it is still pretty true. So the Jewish, the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York City has essentially, apparently, uh, canceled Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis is persona non grata with the Jewish Heritage Museum. And I really, if this is the case, and look, I want to take, uh, I want to take them at their word that this isn't true, but it looks pretty true to me. Um, you have a situation where the the museum canceled an event that was supposed to feature Ron DeSantis. 
Now, New York City Councilwoman Ina Vernikov of uh, Brooklyn, who's Jewish, she's announced that she is withholding her $5,000 donation to the museum because she claims that DeSantis was barred from speaking at the event. Now, I don't know Councilman Vernikov, but every, you know, I, I have friends that serve with her. And everything that I've heard from her publicly, she doesn't seem like the kind of person that just makes this kind of thing up. But um, Elliot Abrams and Eric Cohen, who were working closely with the museum to plan the event, they wrote in a Wall Street Journal op-ed that museum staff claimed DeSantis didn't align with the museum's values and its message of inclusivity. Well, I mean, I think that's just rotten. Now, I want to be very clear. This is a denunciation with an asterisk because the museum did put out a statement saying no one was banned or canceled and that the um, it was a factually inaccurate piece in the Wall Street Journal about this. Uh, so we'll in- we can investigate further. But until I am convinced otherwise, I must denounce the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Hate to do it, but I must. I must also denounce the Taliban. Uh, The Taliban is now ordering women to cover their faces. Women have also now been told to avoid going out in public. Do you remember when we left Afghanistan and we were working with the Taliban to secure uh, different facilities from our joint enemy, ISIS-K? You remember that? What were we hearing at the time? We were hearing from Taliban spokespeople essentially that uh, oh well you know this is not your grandfather's taliban this is a kinder gentler taliban this is taliban 2.0 well it's all nonsense the fact that on saturday they ordered women to cover their faces in public and avoid leaving their homes uh and that these are only the latest restrictions that they've imposed on women since taking power last week uh, last year this shows you the taliban is full of it They're just as repressive towards women and really anybody that's not an Islamic fundamentalist, ideally a male Islamic fundamentalist, as they ever were. So, Taliban, I do denounce you. I must also denounce these protesters who are vandalizing Catholic churches. Apparently, um, this is going on all over the country. Now, it makes no difference to me whether you are pro-life or pro-choice. I think there's a lot to be said for both positions. And, uh, you know, again, talking to some friends last night about that Ed Koch documentary, and he says in that documentary, when he was questioned about backing a pro-life politician, he says, look, this is an issue of conscience. And if someone con- someone's conscience leads them to one position or another, who am I to question that? That's the way I feel. Um, now, that being said, I think there's no reason for someone to be heckled as they're leaving a Catholic church or any church. And there's absolutely no reason for the kind of vandalism that we're seeing at Catholic churches all over the country. Uh, at least three Texas Catholic churches alone were b- vandalized uh, by these pro-choice activists. The message pro-choice is pro-life was found splashed across the front door of one church. You know, honestly, if if you're going to vandalize a church, whatever your cause is, whatever your view is, whatever your theology is, whatever your ideology is, whatever your position is on anything, 
you're a total low life. You are a total low life and a despicable person. And I have absolutely no respect for you. Honestly, if you're going to do that sort of thing, you are a reprehensible human being uh, because there's no need for it. It only serves to make people angry. And I wonder, you know, you know who made a lot of sense on this issue? Um, I was listening Saturday afternoon. My wife and I were driving out to Long Island. We're listening to Anthony Weiner. And he even called out the shenanigans of these people saying, look, it makes no sense because essentially if you're pro-choice, you believe it should be a choice, a choice between a woman and her family, her husband, her boyfriend, uh, her doctor and her clergy. So why would you be alienating um, people that are so integral to that decision-making process? I I really make no sense. And do you think you're going to win converts by doing this? Are, is somebody going to walk out of church, see their church spray-painted and say, oh, you know, I was all for Roe v. Wade being overturned, but now I'm not. It's idiotic and it's self-defeating. And it's mean-spirited. And anybody that engages in this kind of conduct, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the person who stole, and it looks like they have an arrest here. Um, I don't like to call out suspects unless there's overwhelming evidence, but so I won't mention this person's name. But I want to denounce the person who stole the electric wheelchair that belonged to a 95-year-old Holocaust survivor. Um, They have made an arrest, and this person's facing charges of grand larceny. You know, this person is accused of stealing an electric wheelchair valued at over $2,500 that belonged to Eric Plan, a 95-year-old man who was imprisoned at Auschwitz. And this is just reprehensible. I don't know that I need to say anything more. I'm denouncing the person or persons that would steal a wheelchair from anybody, an electric wheelchair, especially from anybody that's disabled, but especially from someone that's 95. And look, obviously the thief didn't know that this was a Holocaust survivor, but it just adds an extra degree of insult. I must also denounce Patty Lapone. You know, I alluded to this yesterday in my discussion with uh, Jeremy Murphy, uh, but I really found, you know, this clip, which has now gone viral, of this performer, Patti Lapone, ranting and screaming, get the F out at a patron for refusing to mask up after a performance of company. And even though she wasn't wearing a mask at the time, um, and now she's doubling down on that. She was doing a post-show Q&A. And uh, she was asked about this, and she just doubled doubled down. Um, and you got to ask the question: Well, if masking is so great, why not you? Why aren't you masked? Does being on stage somehow mean that you can't get others sick? Is a stage a shield? We already know these folks are vaccinated, right? So, um, is. I mean, I just I really don't like that. I I, I found it really elitist. Um, I want to denounce Paul Means. Paul Means is a mean fella. Paul Means is one of the worst types of people out there. He's not only a criminal, 
but uh, a rat. So here's what he did, this person. Here was a person who um, was a... He had 21 felony convictions. 12 of them were, in his own words, crimes of dishonesty. And he's now he was facing a hefty sentence for charges that included, you name it. So he ends up, I know it's hard to believe, but he ends up going to prison. And in prison... He rats on everybody. Everybody. And now he's actually charged with shooting a man in a 2017 robbery that occurred. Well, okay. Uh, Let me back up because it's a complicated case. But it's one that I feel the need to explain a bit. Um, And it's... It's somebody that um, is worthy of some special recognition. So he had 21 felony convictions. And he's been used repeatedly in Florida by Tampa prosecutors to help put other people in jail. And he's been just a one-man crime wave, but he's been so helpful to prosecutors. He is a level one jailhouse informant, and he testifies in trial after trial, going through his rap sheet, and lo and behold, he is able to find a way to get out of prison, if you can believe that, right? And he actually um, ends up killing somebody else and running away from the police. So uh, this fella is, as far as I'm concerned, just horrible. He, I mean, for the last decade, he has touted this ability to extract incriminating statements from those with whom he was incarcerated. So he gets locked up with people, gets the people he's locked up with to incriminate themselves further, rats them out to the authorities testifies in their trials, either for the crime, their initial crime or subsequent crimes, and for all that trouble, gets let out of prison, and then immediately proceeds to kill someone else. I think this is just a textbook example of why relying on informants and giving these informants a get-out-of-jail-free card is just fraught with problems. This is the kind of person that should not be free, as far as I'm concerned. Um, If there's more time, we'll get into this a little bit later, because it is a little bit of a complicated story, and and I'm just giving it a little bit of a short shrift here. I want to denounce Nina Jankowicz. Nina Jankowicz is the new Minister of Truth for the Department of Homeland Security. I really didn't believe that she said this, but she did. 
She recently told participants in a Zoom chat that she's verified by Twitter. Additionally, she wants a situation. Now, I'm verified by Twitter, too. That just means you have the blue check mark. She just she added that additionally, verified people should be able to essentially edit Twitter in the same sort of way that Wikipedia is so they can add context to certain tweets. So she wants verified people to be able to edit the tweets of unverified people and said so publicly. I mean, I'll tell you, this disinformation governance board sounds like they're in good hands as long as they've got someone with the proper Twitter verification. Am I right? Uh, I want to denounce Arizona. Arizona is the worst state in the entire country for teachers. You know, I love teachers. Teachers are great. Without teachers, where would the rest of us be? When it comes to salary and career prospects, a new report finds Arizona at the very bottom of the list. Number 50 out of the U.S. states with the worst marks on salary and work environment. So... If you're a teacher, stay out of Arizona. And finally, this is an interesting story. I want to denounce a former sheriff's deputy. And again, he's entitled to the presumption of innocence. But in this case, he was actually caught um, on video. So I think he's kind of dead to rights here. This former sheriff's deputy who has now been charged with burglarizing an Arizona couple while they were getting married. So this Arizona couple was in the midst of their their dream wedding and a thief walked away with all sorts of expensive gifts and a a priceless card from the bride's late grandmother. And so surveillance cameras captured this well-dressed suspect stealing a money box loaded with thousands of dollars in cash and gift cards. And it all happened while Ryan and Catherine McWilliams were saying their vows And it turns out that it was this former sheriff's deputy, Landon Rankin. Rankin, who also once appeared on a TV crime show, has been charged with two counts of burglary. So um, the bride says that the family didn't tell them until the next day so that they can enjoy their wedding. Now, the couple set up a GoFundMe to try and recoup the $2,000 in gifts they lost. Hopefully, uh, once they nail this guy, he'll be he'll be forced to make restitution to uh, to that couple. All right. Uh, that concludes this edition of Denunciations. If you want to comment on anybody I've denounced, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Uh, and we'll take your calls on uh, as many other subjects as we can for the rest of the hour. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
This is Led Zeppelin. If you ever want to hear the uh, note about the music that we play on the show, just uh, join our Facebook group. Uh, go on Facebook and type Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. Now, uh, one story I didn't get to talk about on Wednesday morning's show is the acquittal of celebrity chef Mario Batali. Did you hear about this? We all know, I think, who Mario Batali is. Even I, who don't know about all these famous chefs, even I know who Mario Batali is. And um, he was found not guilty Tuesday at a bench trial, not a jury trial, bench trials where the judge gets to decide on charges of indecent assault and battery related to the alleged groping of a starstruck patron at a Boston restaurant in 2017, five years ago. So Judge James Stanton noted that Batali's conduct was not befitting of a public person of his stature. You know, I love these judges. You know what words I want to hear from a judge? Guilty or not guilty? I don't want to hear, well, you're not guilty, but uh, I don't like what you did. It's not befitting of a public person of his stature. Excuse me, judge. Did we ask you to be the determiner of... What was befitting of a public person? But anyway, um, so the judge said that um, Batali's behavior five years ago was not befitting of his his stature, but that his accuser has significant credibility issues that supported the defendant's contention that her motive was financial gain. So um, Batali smiled after the verdict. He thanked his lawyers. His accuser hurried out of the courtroom as soon as the judge declared the defendant not guilty. This verdict came one day after Natalie Tenney took the stand at this uh, criminal trial in Boston, testifying that he groped her during an impromptu selfie session. The, the Suffolk County DA, Kevin Hayden, in a statement said the verdict was disappointing and that his office will not waver in our support for the victim in this case, uh, the prosecutor said it can be incredibly difficult for a victim to disclose a sexual assault when the individual who committed such an abhorrent act is in a position of power or celebrity. The decision to report an assault can become all the more challenging and intimidating. So there you have it. Now, uh, Batali was charged with indecent assault and battery. He denied these allegations, pled not guilty, and um Evidently, they found that the photos and the videos do not support her testimony. And I wonder two things. One, you know, he's facing a civil suit over this same incident. But what I wonder is, do you think, you you remember when the Me Too movement was at its apex a few years ago? The worst thing at that time that you could be accused of was sexual harassment or sexual assault or groping or whatever. And it was career-ending. Then it seemed like people started questioning some of the allegations against some people. And then you began to hear a whole bunch of stories about people 
using these accusations against others to either hurt them because they had a personal axe to grind against them or because they wanted you know money or something. And I've seen this before, you know, with people that I've known personally. And I wonder two things. One, do you think that the bubble has sort of burst on the Me Too movement? That now people are actually, they're not ready to instantly believe any accuser. They actually want to see where the evidence goes. I hope that's the case. And I, re- I realize that it's tough for women that are, or men even, that have been victims of sexual assault to come forward, especially against someone that's powerful. I know that. I understand that. But I think there was too much of a, a rush to dr- judgment um, at the beginning of the Me Too movement. And I'm hoping that the bubble has burst. And I'm wondering if you think this not guilty verdict is an indication of that. 800-848-9222. The other thing that I wonder about is masses of people love sticking it to celebrities. They love sticking it to the wealthy and the powerful. And Mario Batali, I don't know his financial situation, but it sounds like he's both. If this were a jury trial instead of a bench trial, do you think there would have been a different result? I wonder. So the judge called Batali's conduct a lesson, there's a quote from him, a lesson for all of those people in public or celebrity positions and said he paid a high cost in terms of diminished reputation and financial loss. But the judge said the case was about credibility and he called the accuser's conduct as, uh, it called Tanay's conduct as a sworn juror in another case egregious and offensive to the rule of law. He said that testimony about an alleged scheme by Tanay to evade a $200 gym membership with a fictitious legal document also damaged uh, her credibility. Now, there have been multiple allegations against Batali. And Batali had stepped away from public view in the wake of these allegations, and his restaurant group cut ties with him in 2018. You know, it's the old phrase. Uh, I think it was first coined by Ray Donovan, the Secretary of Labor, not the Leave Schreiber character, when he said, where do I go to get my reputation back? Now, here he is known to all sorts of people now as a as a groper, serial groper. He his own restaurant group cut ties with him. And he's still facing another trial on civil charges. The New York Police Department reviewed sexual misconduct allegations against Patali, but they closed two of their investigations. So. Um, 800-848-WABC if you want to comment. So apparently the evening started, according to the uh, accuser, Miss Tanay, when she met a friend in March of 2017 at a restaurant in Boston. So she, she said she recognized Batali taking a seat near her at the bar. She tried to covertly take a photo of him. Then Tanay said her friend told her Batali caught her sneaking the picture. So Tanay walked over and apologized to Batali. She said and promised to delete the photo. Tanay then took about 10 selfies at around 1230 in the morning. She said in their heads, faces, shoulders and whatever could fit in the frame were visible. And according to her, he has his face pressed up against mine and he's pulling my body closer to his. He's kissing the side of my face. 
He has his other arm wrapped behind me. His hands were in sensitive areas, touching me, touching my body. It was like a selfie, but other things were happening simultaneously. His other hand that can't be seen is touching my body in sensitive areas. Batali kept asking to take more selfies. Now, maybe, and again, I, I don't know how much of this is true, and clearly the judge found enough of what she said wasn't true. But maybe, just maybe, it's not the best idea in the world to run up to people you've never met, even if they're famous, and put them in a position to put their hands all over you. I mean, call me crazy. I don't know. 800-848-WABC if you want to comment. Uh, three open lines. Jack is in Queens. Hello, Jack. Oh, yeah. Listen, uh, Frank, uh, I just want to tell you, I, I'm very disappointed with the fact that um, our mayor, Eric Adams, is not enforcing things the way he should. The new police policies, the issues involving uh, uh, violence within our youth, terrible. And no one is in Washington or in Albany is doing nothing to help us out here. We have to listen to Mayor Adams decide and make decisions for us. And while he's making them, we're going on our streets to buy milk and so taxes, and we can't even call the police that fast. Frank, is there anywhere we can go to, to defend ourselves? Because now even they're challenging the laws involving uh, carry permits. What is this? What's going on? Well, Jack, you were sort of all over the place, right? So uh, I didn't vote for Eric Adams, but I'm certainly not going to blame him for the baby formula shortage. Uh, that's number one. Number two is uh, I think Eric Adams is saying a lot of the right things. Like when he talked about that cop that was shot the other day and how that person never should have been out of jail after that prior gun arrest. I think he was right on the money. Um, could he be doing some different things? Absolutely. I certainly think so. But I um, I really I think that um, unfortunately, a, a lot of the key to this is the DAs and the state legislature, the laws that have been passed by the state legislature. And until we get political reform, I don't think you're going to see any changes in the system. I think, honestly, political reform is the key to everything else. Bobby in Rockaway, hello. Hey, Frank, how are you? Um, do you remember um, the, the show Friends? I, 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 I mean, I don't remember it. Every episode, the way I do Seinfeld, but yes, I've rem- I remember seeing it. Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, I, just, I, I don't want to defend anybody, but you know, um, Dan Soup Nazi on there, and I, I call Patty Lapone when you get you know denounced her. She's a mass Nazi, and I you know, I just I just feel it's so crazy that some of these people go so nuts over you know she had to think over her mouth, but not over her nose, and uh, some people get a little anyway. Uh, Matt Richtel uh, had some great, uh, some good information on DDT and CBT, both great therapies. You know, I was in the DDT program for, for two years, and I got a lot out of it. Uh, I'm currently going back for more because I digressed and I reverted back to some, some crappy thinking and some um, some bad behaviors, you know, so uh, I'm heading back to it now. Um, I struggle with the bad memories and nightmares or intrusive thoughts and all of that stuff. But the DDT really helps out with that. You know, it's giving you a new dialect, it gives you a new way of thinking. It gives you, helps you put your shoe, your feet in somebody else's shoes. It's an idea from somebody else. It's it's one of the best things. It's skills, man. 
it, it gets you, you know, it helps you get out of situations and, uh, you know, it, it gets you into a wise mind. It, it gets you out of that rational mode or the emotional mode mind. They call it the emotional mind. Yeah, well, I, I'm that. glad you mentioned that, Bobby. And I really would encourage you um, to read this book, Inspiration. It's really great. Yeah. I, I don't have time to read anything. And I've been reading this book and it's it's just terrific. It's really good. I can't recommend it highly enough. And his previous book was was just as good. And as I said in the interview, it taught me a lot about the immune system. And occasionally during the COVID pandemic, I would once in a while sound like I knew what I was talking about, in part because of the lessons that I learned in that book. All right, 800-848-WABC. B. Thomas calling in from Staten Island. B. Thomas, what brings you awake at this odd hour? Good morning, Frank. Uh, I I wanted to first um, join you in your comment. Uh, your uh, condemning. Uh, uh, I wanted to condemn espresso martinis. I, I read an article a few weeks ago in the New York Post about uh, it was quote this insanely popular cocktail is ruining your sleep and heart health. And I have, I'm feeling that tonight. Uh, <laughs> I, I had a nice dinner with friends last night, and uh, at the end of the night, the owner came around. And brought a um, brought a you know just a little bit of a espresso martini as a you know just at the end of the night cocktail, and um, went to sleep. And I have not. I woke up about an hour ago. Um, I have not been able to get back to sleep. Well, good. That's great for me. Well, we want more people drinking espresso martinis. I don't want anybody asleep at this time. <laughs> I have a baby to feed. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, what's on your mind? Yeah. I also wanted to speak to this judge, uh, Judge James Stanton, you've con- uh, who you've been speaking about just now. And I heard you say um, you, know, you think he, he should have ju- – you want to hear guilty or not guilty when you have a judge doing a bench trial. And I just think that's very unfair. I think that if, if you um, – if the judge just simply came out with guilty or not guilty, uh, everybody would be wondering what was the context in which he r- made such a decision in such a controversial case. Um, and the fact that he gave that context to it, I think, has allowed the public to to get a better insight into the rationale uh, in our criminal justice system rather uh, well, than speculate. You know, fair enough. I could deal with an explanation of the guilty or not guilty verdict in this case, not guilty verdict. Um, what I can't stand uh, and look, I don't know the laws in Arizona and how they work, but uh, in a case like this one. I can't stand the judge passing a value judgment on the person that's at odds with his ruling. Nobody asked him oh, to make any judgment about Mario Batali's uh, character. And the other thing, I mean, you sound like you're very pro-judge, so I don't want uh, you know I don't want to be too anti-judge here. But um, the other thing that drives me crazy in federal cases, and I know the Supreme Court has upheld this as constitutional. The thing that drives me crazy in federal cases is when people are acquitted and then they get sentenced for acquitted conduct. Uh, to me, that is, if not illegal, it's, which I think it should be, it's way uh, – it's unfair. I'll say that. I appreciate, I appreciate you taking the time. All right. Hey, hey, stay, stay on, line, on the line here, B. Thomas, because you sound like you know something about the, uh, the law here. And uh, I want to help you. I, wanna, I want you to get your help in addressing a question from Rick in New Jersey. Rick, uh, w- what's your take on this whole situation? Help me out here, uh, Matt. P- punch in Rick in New Jersey, uh, if you would. R- uh, Rick, give me your two cents on this. 
We're talking about the Vitaly thing? Yeah. Uh, well, first, I, the reason I called, I, I don't know my two cents. I, I, I think he should have been let go. Yeah, it, it, this, this whole thing, I, I've taken many selfies with uh, stars because I work on backstage on Broadway. And you, I'm you sure most of them you, assaulted you, right? Yeah, you put your arm around them. Sometimes they put their cheek up against you. It's to show that we're not just being paid to take a picture with you or something. We're actually your friend. I mean, it's it's actually nice when they do that. You know, I, I don't these people. It's like if you don't want someone to come close to you, don't ask to take a selfie. You know, but here's my question, Frank: How does somebody get sued in in, in uh, civil court? If you've been found not guilty in criminal court, they're basically suing you financially for a crime that one court says didn't happen. How, yeah, well, I'm going to because B. Thomas sounds like he knows a thing or two about the law. I'm going to ask him to weigh in, but I'm going to give my best explanation uh, first uh, because it's a different burden of proof. I mean, the best example is is O.J. Simpson. He was acquitted in the uh, double murder and then he was found liable of causing the death of those same people because there's a different burden of proof in civil cases than there are than there is in criminal cases. Now, uh, B. Thomas, I know you don't know the, the particulars of the law in Arizona, but uh, do do your best to answer Rick's question, if you would. Uh, I, I'm going to echo, uh, Frank, your comments, which is it's a different burden of proof in, in a criminal context. It's reasonable doubt, much higher standard. In a civil context, it's a preponderance of the evidence. So in a, for example, in a, in a criminal trial, you'd have 12 jurors and they would all have to, you know, reach a unanimous verdict. Whereas in a civil civil trial, you know, it's a majority or not majority would be five out of six. Um, and they would it would be a preponderance of the evidence standard, which is a much lower standard to reach um, because in a, in a criminal context, it's our individual liberties and our freedom, you know, not to go to prison. That's on the line as opposed to, you know, civil penalties in a civil context. There you go, Rick. Anything else? Any other questions? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just don't understand the, the, the majority thing. It's like how, how where the rules of the uh, unanimous thing go get thrown out for civil? Who did that? I mean, shouldn't it be the same? Well, I guess the legislatures did. Oh my God! Yeah, hey, Rick. So you're doomed. You're doomed. Even if, even if you're vote, no, not guilty, vote in you your local ruined. elections, Rick. Or, or run. No, I, I do. Oh, I, I, I do. vote for you, oh, Rick. I do. Where do you live, Rick? I live in New Jersey. In, no, I know in New Jersey. Where in New Jersey do you live? Barnes. Barnes. Where's Barnes? What county? No, is orange. 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 Oh, in orange. orange. Oh yeah, you should run out there. I'll, we'll come out and campaign for you, Rick. Run on a platform I'll, I'll, of. I'll Making it more difficult to get civil judgments. Uh, you know, you yeah, have my that makes vote. makes no sense. Yeah. All right, Rick. Thank you. And right, B. Thomas, thank, thank, you. thank you. Good luck staying awake uh, with after that espresso martini. Thank you. Thank All you. right. Take care. 800-848-WABC. Rob is on Long Island. Hello, Rob. Hey, Frank. How you doing? I'm just wondering uh, what your what your deal is with the uh, baby food. Are you having any problems getting the uh, formula? Well, I talked about this a little bit yesterday. In fact, my wife was on uh, television a day or so ago uh, commenting about this, and I, I played the audio yesterday. We, we have – oh, Rob hung up there. Uh, we, we've, it's been tough, but not impossible. We have uh, a supply of a couple of weeks, which is the most that we've had so far. And uh, fortunately, Carmine is in the process of transitioning to 
uh, baby food. He's eating rice cereal, sweet potatoes. He tried applesauce again recently, which he didn't like initially, but he seemed to like a little more. So uh, he's not going to starve. We're going to make sure he doesn't starve. But it is incredibly inconvenient. I'll tell you this. My wife's been scouring the Internet for places to buy baby formula, and it's very challenging. Very challenging. Susan is in Brooklyn. Hello, Susan. Okay, Frank, listen, I know you're um, like always on top of the news. And I don't know if this came up late earlier because I must have drifted off after my uh, espresso martini and then (laughs) I woke up. But um, uh, have you been talking about or hearing about the uh, meeting in Geneva, Switzerland, the World Health Assembly that's taking place and the vote? No, I don't know anything about this. Inform- help me out on oh, this. Oh, my goodness. Well, it's been sort of, um, you know, uh, obviously being trying to uh, to conceal what is um, this amendment, which is, uh, and we have our, our delegate, um, if, if, if there's 194 countries and this, uh, in, in the World Health Organization, and we are included in that, and um, the this vote is going to give the World Health Organization um, the ability to declare um, health emergencies in all these countries if if their delegate votes for it. Now, the, so this is a really a move towards the uh, one world order. And um, if our delegate, which is uh, Part which Biden must um, have, you know, uh, chosen. Um, there's a it, it, until 8 a.m. in the morning. It, they, they gave 24 hours on very short notice for the public to comment on this. And since you have some listeners out there. Uh, that you can sign a petition because this would give away our sovereignty. Yeah, I'm so, reading about and, it now. Uh, again, uh, very. I'm not. You know, I don't want to m- judge too harshly based on a 30 second reading of an article. But uh, my reading of this is that this would be bad news. The last thing, uh, you know, we've already seen so much of American sovereignty surrendered uh, th- to things like um, trade agreements and uh, uh, the World Trade Organization and all, all sorts of other things. So if if this does do what you represent it as, uh, this strikes me as bad news. Uh, I'm going to read more about this before the uh, before the assembly uh, meets on uh, May 22nd. But if people do want to sign that petition, Susan, do you want to direct them to go to a specific place? Yes, and we only have till 8 a.m. It is the interest of org. You just it's very simple. You sign that petition against. Uh, uh, the vote for for this amendment, that's a legal action that's taking place. And then there's another website, StopTheWho.com, where you make a public, uh, you just click on uh, make your statement against this. It's not constitutional. It This would allow them to make health emergencies without even contacting us is not yeah. even a, if it's a okay pandemic. well yeah i'm going to so, so if people if people want to you there you go you put that information out there uh i can't vouch for any of the information on the sites that she just mentioned 
But uh, I will look into this a little bit more because people do seem pretty worked up over this. 800-848-9222. Dennis is in the Garden State in New Jersey. Hello, Dennis. Hi. How are you tonight? I'm well. I am. Um, how are you? In regards to the uh, – I'm doing good. Good. Um, in regards to the uh, judge's decision on Batali, I, I understand the difference between the civil and the um, the uh, criminal case or criminal court, but I believe the judge tainted that civil case by making that statement that Batali exhibited poor judgment. Um, you know, you can you can people to disregard what you've heard, but if everybody heard that, they're going to automatically have that in the back of their mind. Right. Right. He he did something wrong. We don't know what, but he did something wrong. Yeah. So doesn't that naturally taint the civil case? Dennis, it's a great point. I would certainly think so. If I were his lawyers in the um, in the civil case, I would raise that. With the judge, I would want to question the jurors during jury selection about their awareness of that. I might even try for uh, a change of venue. It's a great point, Dennis. I agree with you. Dennis, thank you. Um, Meanwhile, I I am going to go crazy if we don't fix these phones. It is driving me crazy. I, I, I must be the only one that hears it because I listen to the station all day long. And I don't hear any of the other hosts going crazy that Verizon has still not fixed that a sound that interrupts people as they're talking. I mean, I feel like I'm in a walking cell phone commercial. I'm walking around. I'm waiting for everyone to say, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? And again, I know our equipment works. We got brand new state-of-the-art equipment here. It's not our phones, not our board. I don't understand what Verizon is so busy doing that they are trying to deprive me of an uninterrupted call from Dennis in New Jersey. Get with it, Dennis. I mean, uh, Verizon. I have nothing against you, Dennis. Sorry. Um, All right. I'll continue with your calls in a minute. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC.
This is, uh, of course, Hooked on a Feeling, Blue Swede. I don't know, is it Blue Swede or Blue Suede? I think it's Blue Swede. Oh, it's B.J. Thomas? What, wasn't B.J. Thomas part of Blue Swede? What, was he? I don't know. I think he was. Uh, but this is an interesting... Was um, Yeah. Oh, oh, this oh, is the, a different like version. Oh, okay. So it's not version. the Blue Suede version. Yeah. Did, did I find this or did you find this? I found this. You found this. Yeah. So this is pretty good. I think this is... Maybe this is the original version? Actually, I think you're right. 1968. Um, yeah. And you're right. Yeah, this is the original version. It's been recorded many other times. But back when this was released in 1968, this was the number one song back in uh, back in the whole in the whole country. And then, uh, actually, and then, no, it was not a number one. It was number five when B.J. Thomas did it, and then with Blue Swede or Blue Suede, it was number one in 1974. This is one of those songs where the cover was actually more popular than the original. There are a lot of songs like that. And can you think of any, Matt Place? Yes. Name one. Valerie. Oh, who was the original? The original was some, I can't remember the name of the group, but the Mark Ronson, Amy Winehouse version is better than the original. Well, you know, that does have, I think we have done this segment before because I think the best example that I could think of is New York, New York, right? Um, the Frank Sinatra version is so much better known than the Liza Minnelli version. And, and that's true of a lot of Sinatra songs because he made he had a way of making all of these songs his own. Uh, that's Life, for instance. Who remembers the O.C. Smith version of That's Life? Not a lot of people. But uh, I'm going to suggest to Vinnie Madugno, who I can't stress enough, at that dinner the other day, I was blown away at what a good singer he is. I'm going to suggest to Vinny Madugno, he's on Before Cousin Brucey, Saturday nights at 5 p.m., right after the best of The Other Side of Midnight, that he do that one day, is do a whole hour dedicated to covers that are better known. This is Blue Swede, right? Yeah. See, you can understand my, you know, they have a similar style to BJ Tom. That, that do a, a whole show based on covers that are more popular than the original. Uh, by the way, you can tune in to the best of the other side of midnight Saturday at 4 p.m. right after Curtis and Anthony Weiner and before Vinnie Madunia. Um But that's that. All right. Hey, hey uh, by the way, Matt Blaze, since you – I feel like you're in a more of a talkative mood than you normally are, which is great. Okay. Normally it's like you're half asleep <laughs> during the show. Um, did you try the pizza today? I did. What was your take on it? I had the mushroom, which I liked, and I had the white slice. And what did I you liked. think of each? I thought they were great. They uh, weren't too big, though. They were like smaller slices. But I was fine with that. Yeah. Tonight. Avery, did you eat any of the pizza? No. He's I busy. Know. I understand. Um, and what about you, Philippe? Thumbs up? Thumbs down? Uh, thumb in between. Okay. That is my review. And you know what? Um, I don't remember the name of the place that we ordered from, and I, I wouldn't name it anyway because I don't want to dog anybody. But we ordered one large pie. We ordered a pepperoni pie, and then we ordered a mushroom and a white pie. And I thought it was, first of all, it was expensive. For three pies with tip and whatever the delivery fee was, it came out to $74. And I'm expecting, for $74 worth of pizza, I'm expecting something like unbelievable. Because that's more than what we usually pay. That's crazy. 
For those three pizzas, it was seventy-four. It was almost again. Pizza is like sex, right? Even if it's bad, it's still pretty good. So it it wasn't terrible. It was edible, but it was frighteningly mediocre. You know what it was? Um, it was so I'm not going to order from this place again because the pie wasn't that good. I always try to get a different spot each week, but unfortunately, you know, when you're asking people to make deliveries at midnight. There's only so many spots in your delivery area that are going to do that. It was a little spongy. Now, I didn't have dinner before we got here, so I actually had two slices. I usually try not to have the the pizza. I try to slice the mushroom and a slice of the white. And that was my review. It was it was spongy. It didn't have a crisp crust. It was it was weak. It was weak. It wasn't quite lunchroom pizza, but it was uh it was weak. Now, almost it was almost lunchroom pizza. Almost. Right. Oh, but not quite. Not quite. All right. 800-848-9222. Coming up next hour, we're going to talk about uh, cryptocurrency and where we are now. Hey, uh, it was great. I got to. I rarely do this before a show. In fact, I don't think I've ever done this before a show. But I went to the Carnegie Club last night, which is a, a cigar lounge here in Manhattan. It's a great spot. Uh, there are very few places that you can that are still open to the public as cigar lounges these days. And uh, I, I got to go and I met uh, some friends of mine, my friend Brian Peroni, who was kind enough to take me to Rayo's one night. And I wanted to return the favor and bring him to the Carnegie Club. And I had hoped that I could get Rudy Giuliani to uh, you know meet him as well because he's a big admirer of Rudy Giuliani. But Rudy wasn't available. But it just so happens that we ran into another fella Pat Russo, who I haven't seen in 17 years, but it turns out Pat's a big listener to the station, listens all the time. So we ended up hanging out with him, and I got to meet uh, Brian's son and a friend of his. And then uh, O.B. Murray, who I've talked about before, who's one of the great political consultants of all time, he uh, ended up meeting us as well. So it was great to spend an hour or so with them and to uh, have a cigar. And Todd Shapiro, who's great, who's one of the, you know, one of our publicists for the station, had gifted me a Monte Cristo cigar, um, which I smoked last night. Boy, was that good. Quite good. Um, Hey, Mike is in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frank. What's up? Good morning. Morning. Uh, Blue Suede, the song Hooked on a Feeling. Introduction was Ooga Shaga, Ooga Shaga. From the film Reservoir Dogs by Quentin Tarantino. Well, it's not from Reservoir Dogs, but they did play it in Reservoir Dogs. But why was it Uga Shaga? Uga Shaga. I, I don't know what I, I don't know. I have to look into that. But um, you that that song, that version of that song, Mike, and thanks for the call, is very interesting because it had actually three resurgences. It was big in the seventies when it came out. Then in the early nineties. It was big when it was on the soundtrack of Reservoir Dogs. Then they put it in an episode of Ally McBeal. I think it was when the baby used to dance around. And it developed a whole resurgence with then. And then in the tw- in 2014, they put it in that movie Guardians of the Galaxy. And it had a whole resurgence again. So other than that uh, Mariah Carey song at Christmas time that everybody makes a big deal about, I don't know that any song has had that many... Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. I'm kind of talking out of my behind. But it's certainly a very popular song. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Uh, this is the other side of midnight. You know, I've been very interested in cryptocurrency for a long time. Uh, and I've, you know, I've, I don't have any money in cryptocurrency. I've never used cryptocurrency. I have nothing to do with cryptocurrency other than a, a sincere desire to learn about it. And so I've seen what has happened to certain cryptocurrencies over the course of the last four years since I've been following it. And all these people that have become cryptocurrency millionaires and billionaires. And I said to my wife recently, I said, hey, do you think I should try to become a cryptocurrency billionaire? Because, look, I'm seeing some of the people that have become crypto billionaires, and I got news for you, they're not that bright. I feel like if that guy can do it, I can. So, meanwhile, there was always this feeling, because I would hear from some other smart people that crypto is a scam, or crypto is that, or crypto is this, and... This week, it looks like um, some of the crypto chickens are coming home to roost because cryptocurrency, uh, Bitcoin among them, which is sort of the leading cryptocurrency, has declined 40% this week. It's just tanked. Others have lost even more of their value. So we're going to explore in about 27 minutes where we go from here. Simon Constable from the Wall Street Journal is going to be here. Uh, John Tobacco, who's a cryptocurrency investor. These are two guys on opposite sides of the crypto debate. And we'll get their take on where we go from here as it relates to cryptocurrency. Meantime, let's talk about something really important. Anchovies. Matt Blaze, you like anchovies? Ugh. See, I like them. I like them. Uh, I wouldn't put them on pizza, but I like them in a salad, you know, like a Caesar salad or something or a Greek salad. I, I like anchovies. Um, sardines. Where are you on sardines? Ugh. Okay. See, I I am – I don't – I don't remember the last time I had sardines. But Dennis Prager, I remember one time, did a segment on because he loves sardines. He would go and get a sardine sandwich. <laughs> And he, and I never forgot this. This is more than a decade ago. He said, people who, there are two types of people in the world. People that love sardines 
and not people that don't like them, but people that want to make you feel guilty for eating sardines. So I, I told you I didn't have dinner last night uh, because I had to leave early and we were busy with the baby and I had a bunch of other things to do. I was trying to pre-tape something for the Racket Report podcast. I was doing a lot of running around, didn't have time to eat. So in addition to having two slices of pizza today, which I usually don't do, I finished off the rest of my Aunt Camille's egg salad. And as I was eating the egg salad, I was thinking of how she makes it. I still don't necessarily believe that the the recipe that she shared with us, which I put on video and you could see at Facebook.com slash Moranovan, is what she actually does. Because people have tried this, including Glenn, who works here. He tried this, and he's after seeing the video, he says, no, there's more to it than that. There's something else there. Now, uh, we may never get the truth, but there are these Aunt Camille egg salad truthers that are out there. And so I'm thinking of, as I'm eating this, what's in it? And I'm thinking basically her only ingredients are eggs, mayonnaise, and a little salt and pepper. That's it. And I think, you know, I I really try not to eat mayonnaise because it's not good for you. But it tastes pretty good. And then, you know, it's funny the way your brain works. And my brain's working more this way after reading Matt Richtel's book and talking to Matt Richtel. And... You think about one thing and then another and then another. It's like a chain link fence. And then I think about my friend Al, who has works with Joe Piscopo on another radio station. And Al described to me one time the best lobster roll he's ever had. And so I said, what was so good about it? He said, no mayonnaise. It's got butter, no mayonnaise. 100%. He said... And they have a special term for that. I think one is a Maine lobster roll, another is a Connecticut lobster roll, but not necessarily as interested in the the geographic etymology of lobster rolls at the moment. But we can table that for another discussion. See, I don't know what, what you, Matt plays ate his Wheaties today. He's ready to jump in on every conversation. Usually, uh, you, usually it's like pulling teeth. You know, you're making up for the uh, the, the the lack of conversation we're getting from Avery. Uh, I think there you go. But um, so anyway, Matt uh, Al's telling me, yeah. I hate mayonnaise. I think, huh, here you have me. I enjoy mayonnaise. Not, I wouldn't eat just straight mayonnaise out of a jar, but I, you know, tuna salad, egg salad, a lobster roll. There are a lot of things that you could put mayonnaise on that are a shrimp salad that are quite good in my, in my view. And then thinking of Al saying that, I remembered this segment on Jimmy Fallon's show that I had watched 15 years ago. And it was some cooking segment or something. And Jimmy Fallon, out of nowhere, he's usually so jovial and upbeat, goes on a whole rant about how he hates mayonnaise. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. Here you have three people, Jimmy Fallon, Al Gattulo, and Frank Morano. Two of them can't stand mayonnaise. And you have me who likes it. And then I started thinking, is mayonnaise... The most polarizing food in the world. And I quickly said, no, it's got to be anchovies. And I said, no, it's got to be sardines. And I thought to myself, what other foods are really, really polarizing? Uh, Not a food that people can take or leave, like turkey. Turkey is one of those foods that you could take or leave. Nobody's going to get really passionate about turkey. 
But what are the most polarizing foods in existence? And I did a little research, and I came up with a number of lists that claim to list the most polarizing foods that there are. And there's one that I would not have thought of if I didn't see these lists, but it appears on every single one. You know what that food is, believe it or not? Cilantro. Because for some people, cilantro tastes like soap. I love cilantro. I'll put it on everything. But I thought maybe it would be fun to make our own list of sort of the the 10 or 20 most polarizing foods in America. So, so far, based on just our conversation here and my thinking out loud, we got four. We got sardines. We got anchovies. We got mayonnaise. And we have cilantro. Um, One food that I was very surprised, and I'm not going to put it on my list because I don't agree with it, um, but I was very surprised to see it appear on several of these food lists, was mushrooms. Now, I love mushrooms. I would have mushrooms with every meal if I could. Love mushrooms. I love mushrooms every possible way. Mushroom burgers, mushroom uh, risotto, mushrooms on everything. Mushrooms on pizza. That's why we ordered a a mushroom pizza. I would put mushrooms on top of mushrooms if I could. In fact, I have. I get a nice portobello mushroom and then stuff it with other mushrooms. Love it. Love mushrooms. My wife doesn't like mushrooms. Whenever we order something together, we have to order it without the mushrooms. But I don't think the mushroom of mushrooms is a very polarizing food. So what do you think? are the most polarizing foods out there. 800-848-9222. Mike is in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. How are you doing? Liver. You know, that is is a great one. That is a great one. Let me ask you this, Mike, and I'm putting it on the list because that's a good one. Do you like liver worst? No. See, I stopped eating it, but when I was a kid, I used to love liver worst, and friends of mine hated it. Uh, so I think I put liver worst in that same category as liver. Me too. You could smell liver cooking from a block away. Grandma used to say, come on, dinner's ready. You go, uh-uh, I'll eat out. <laughs> <laughs> you could smell that stuff cooking from a block away no matter what. Onions, red, oh, it's disgusting. Uh, they like it. Yeah, they do. You know, it's funny. That's what actually turned me off of liver worst. I always loved liver worst. And then uh, when I was a, a kid, maybe 13, uh, 14, maybe, I no, I wasn't that old. Maybe it was 12. I was staying with my grandfather, and he made liver. He made, And I thought it was just terrible. And even though I liked liver worst, it tasted too similar to liver worst. And at that moment, I said, I'm done. I'm off liver and I'm off liver worst. Uh, so I'm with yep. you. Liver or liver worst. That's, that's a good one. So, so far we got sardines. We got anchovies. We got mayonnaise. We got cilantro. We got liver slash liver worst, but not mushrooms. What do you think the most polarizing foods are? And by the way, if you like these foods, then own it. Then own it. If you like one of these uh, polarizing foods, stand up and say so. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Bob is in North Carolina. Hello, Bob. Hi. Uh, ranch dressing. My friend and I can't stand it. And, and it, it, they serve it on everything. If you, you don't ask, they, you get ranch dressing. You know, that is that is a good one. And I'm going to I think I am going to put it on my list because I have noticed people do have sort of that instant reaction 
to ranch dressing. And I have to tell you, I've never really understood why, because to me, ranch dressing is sort of innocuous. It's almost like, um, you know, if you've seen Get Me to the Greek, it's the Jeffrey of condiments. It's like, it's not too harmful. It's there. It kind of well, goes on everything. Well, that's, that's it. It, it. it has no character like blue cheese does. Uh, honey mustard has character. Ranch dressing, you might as well put, I don't know, put olive oil on it. You know, so that's interesting that you've made a value judgment about the character of ranch dressing versus uh, versus honey mustard. And I don't know that I've ever heard anybody make that character comparison before. Well, it just uh, that. Well, blue cheese certainly has character. Yep. Yep. And, uh, yep. Well, it's very interesting. Uh, the judge in the Mario Batali case said that his conduct and his appearance and his demeanor were not befitting of a public person of his stature at that time. In the eyes of Bob in North Carolina, he's of the belief that, uh, you know, his the conduct of an appearance of ranch dressing is not befitting of a public condiment of its stature. So be it. 800-848-9222. Pamela is in central New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Hi. Um, mayonnaise, um, you have to have a really good mayonnaise, and the, the oil base is really important. Like, I don't want my the oil in anything to interfere with the taste of the food. And um, so the best mayonnaise is made with whole eggs and sunflower oil. Do you have and, any particular um, brand that you recommend? Yeah, what is it? The Kensinger? Um, they changed their recipe recently. It's not as good as it used to be, but that was pretty good. That was pretty good. That's pretty good. That's what I buy, uh, the sunflower oil. That has to be the base because if you have uh, soybean, most of them use soybean, and that's ugh. And um, some of them use, um, uh, you know, like uh, olive oil, you know, like if it's, oh, it's organic, it's olive oil. But no, no, no. Olive oil, you shouldn't really cook with olive oil unless it's a high-burning olive oil. But um, the may- the best mayonnaise is a new oil. Sunflower oil actually is good for a lot of things if you don't want your food to taste oil. And another point, another episode of a show, um, everybody loves uh, Raymond. There's an episode like uh, you're talking about your Aunt Camille's uh, eggplant. Egg salad. Uh, I mean, uh, yes. egg salad, rather. Um, <laughs> there's an episode where uh, the mother-in-law is finally going to give uh, Raymond's wife the recipe to her. I think it's lasagna or something. So she gives her the actual condiments. And one of the condiments, I think, is turmeric or cinnamon, but she covers it up and she puts something like you would put in lasagna. <laughs> and everybody's going, you know, it's not quite like mom's it's not quite like there's something you know there's something weird about it that's funny that's funny i haven't seen that but that's very funny you know it's interesting my uncle jimmy he passed away he was my grandfather's brother my uncle jimmy he was in the no mayo camp so you had uh pamela there she is not she's not joe mayo but pro mayo my uncle jimmy was no mayo and he discussed there was some food that my aunt Nancy would give him. It might have been something as simple as coleslaw. And she had to lie to him about whether or not there was mayonnaise in the coleslaw because he wouldn't have eaten it if he knew there was mayo in there. But ultimately, he, you know, became a convert, if not to mayo. I wonder if she ever told him before he died. I don't know. Uh, at least to coleslaw. 
800-848-WABC. You know, I just thought of another one, a very polarizing food. I'm going to put it on my list. Caviar. Caviar. I guess there are a lot of fish dishes that fit this category. Caviar, very polarizing. You either like it or you don't. Tom is on Staten Island. Hello, Tom. Well, hi. Hi, Frank. First, I'm I'm pro-mayo. Pro-mayo. Okay. Yes. You know what? Maybe that's a political party that would get some of these warring factions together. If there was a pro-mayo party, maybe they can, you know, we get through some of these these problems the country is facing a bit easier. That's true. Now, the food I despise is horseradish. Oh, horseradish. See, I like horseradish, but you're right. That's one that a lot of folks don't like. And I'm that gold's horseradish. um, Forget it. I'm like making an advertisement, but. Any horseradish. You know, do you like wasabi? You know, I think it's in there, but I I do love wasabi. Really? Interesting. Because I find most people that like horseradish like wasabi and vice versa. You are the exception, Tom. I'll see you at the ProMeo meetings. Sean is in Park Ridge. Hello, Sean. Hey, how's it going? Uh, I have to tell you, growing up, I used to always have mayonnaise on, like, all my sandwiches. It was just something we always did, and I loved it. But as I got older and I was trying to eat a little healthier, I said, what can I do to swap mayonnaise? So actually, uh, my sister introduced me into hummus. Oh. So I, I actually put hummus instead of mayo now. Well, that I mean, that's a lot healthier. I love hummus. And uh, I find that, it, that is, that's, a, that's a great alternative to mayo. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, the food I have for you, which I cannot stand, and my nieces and my sisters love it, is tofu. See, I'm surprised to hear you say that because tofu to me doesn't have any taste. It's just a holder you know, of whatever sauce you, that you put on it. Yeah, But you know what, Frank? I, I got to tell you, um, I, I'll be honest. I never really, I think I might have had it once only because it's the texture. It's just looking at it. It's like jiggly and jello-y looking. And I don't, I just don't like the texture of it or anything. You know what I mean? You know, Sean, um, that's a good point. It's a good point. You, the looks can be deceiving, and thank you for the call. We're going to work our way through a few of these, then do the $1,000 minute and the crypto panel. But everything is an expectations game. When I was eight or nine years old, I was at my Aunt Clara's house. Now, my Aunt Clara, she lived to be 95 at a time when nobody was living to be 95. And she had all these health foods. She had health foods before people knew what health foods were. I don't know where she was getting these health foods uh, 30, 40 years ago. She she was at a supplier somewhere. But I go into her refrigerator, and she's got a big block of what I think is fresh mozzarella. And I, again, maybe I'm seven or eight, and I... Chop off a piece of this, and I'm expecting some delicious piece of cheese. And I take a big bite of it, and it's just tofu, which to me at the time, sounded, it, it tasted like the most bland thing in the world. I spit it out. I said, this cheese has gone bad. Of course, it was not cheese. It was tofu, and that's how tofu is supposed to taste. So everything can be an expectation game. Uh, Peter in New Jersey, what do you have for us? Pickled herring. Pickled herring. I don't know that I've ever tried pickled herring. My father, my mother used to buy my father. It was in a jar. It was in a white cream sauce with onions. It's in the seafood section of your supermarkets. It's made by uh, 
a company. And I was like, hey, you know what? I want to try it and see how it is. Most disgusting thing I ever tasted <laughs> in my life. Yeah, thank I you. Threw a ball out when my wife, my wife was looking at me. You're gonna eat that? I said, oh, I'm gonna try it. I took one bite. She was like, oh, right into the garbage can. So, uh, thank you, Peter. I'm not gonna put that on my list because I can't vouch for pickled herring, and at least in the, my list is somewhat subjective. Uh, Frankie and Glendale, what do you have for us? I, I'm, I'm in the mayo camp there, but uh, my mother-in-law. Great. Uh, my mother-in-law and her sister, they just go nuts over escargot. I just, it's revolting as far as I'm concerned. You know, I'm with you on that. I only tried it once, and I have no desire to try it again. I am with you on that one. That's it, man. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Vincent in Bay Ridge, hello. Hi. Uh, I grew up in uh, Little Italy uh, when I was a kid. There was a place called Capucel Place. Oh. And they would... <laughs> they would sell uh, sheep's head with the brains. And my mother used to make calves' brains. Oh. I couldn't even stand the smell. Yeah, you know, I don't know what it was about immigrants that came here at the tw- turn of the 20th century. Maybe they didn't have money and they felt they needed to serve all of the animal. But uh, Gabuzel is is exactly what you descri- describe. It's brains. And it, to me, it's the most revolting thing ever. The other thing that I'll put in that category is, did you ever have tripe? Yes. Did you like tripe? Yes. Tripe. I, know, I, I, I didn't like that either. Yeah. Oh. Tripe to me. I, I'm yet to meet anybody that likes it. Um, my friend Darren, who will eat anything, he tried some one time. He thought it was revolting. Phil is in New Jersey. Hello, Phil. Hi, Frank. Frank, is tripe stomach or intestine? I can't remember. Uh, I, you know, I believe it's intestine. Oh, okay. Uh, Frank, I was going to contribute two things. So one is blood sausage, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, which I find delicious, but other people uh, run screaming into the woods. And the other one is uh, tongue, which I almost got beaten up uh, very badly on an incident with a tongue sandwich. Really? So those are my two contributions. I've never tried tongue. Have you tried tongue, Matt Blaze? Do you like it? As a kid, I remember eating it. Really? It, it's just like a very strong ham. Like really? Very strong. Okay. Yeah, I have no desire to try it. I'll be honest. 800-848-9222. Carl in New Jersey has been patiently holding. Hello, Carl. Hello. Hello. Uh, Frank, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Shockingly, I can. Yes. Hi. <laughs> well, I didn't crash on the the pullover so uh anchovies uh, that's a weird one uh mayonnaise yes i'm in a mayonnaise camp huh. uh but i've got one for you cow hoof cow hoof who's eating hoof. cow hoof? the actual no it's uh it, turn it into a gelatinous uh goopy they do make glue out of it by the way and it's um it's uh, pretty uh, pretty much that description. So I do not like that one. Okay. See, there are certain foods that just based on what they're called or what they are, I will never try. Cowhoof falls into that category. Um, but I, I appreciate that, uh, Carl. Thank you. You know, it's funny. I, I was campaigning about 20 years ago in Sunset Park. I was campaigning with a fellow that was running out there. And, you know, he's he's trying to – you know, sample the local delicacies. And I will never forget my reaction when I hear the words 
Um, and, you know, 20 years ago, I had even less money than I do now. So <laughs> I'm always looking for a free meal. And I hear the words, who would like to share a pig's ear with me? We're, we're in a restaurant where apparently that was the thing to order, a pig's ear. Oh, my goodness. That was I, – I, I, I think I had to leave because it looks exactly like a pig's ear. I was not about to eat a pig's ear. And then, you know, I'm all into – going to the original location of certain chains. So what do you do? You go to the uh, original Nathan's in Coney Island, and I love Nathan's more than anybody. So, I mean, I love Coney Island more than anybody, so I go to the original Nathan's. Now, I don't know if it's still this way, but at least a few years ago, 90% of what you can get at the Coney Island Nathan's is identical to what you can get in every other Nathan's all over the world. But they had this whole section of foods that you could only get at the Coney Island Nathan's. Uh, the chow mein on a bun, the soft shell crab sandwich, which I love. That was my favorite. And the frog legs. So 20 years ago, I said, all right, what the heck? I'm Mr. Coney Island. Let me try the frog legs. This will go down in history as one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made. I still remember the taste. It was, I figured, you know, it's going to taste like chicken. This was absolutely reprehensible. I can't imagine why anyone would ever want to eat frog's legs. And I I couldn't do it. I couldn't. Just thinking about it now makes me want to grab gag. Sophia in Brooklyn. Hello, Sophia. Good morning, Frank. God bless you. I wanted to, well, the cabotella is goat's head. We used, they used to roast the goat's head, which is pretty gross. Yeah. But one thing, as a kid, my my parents used to make sanguinano. Oh, so, do you know what that is? Uh, pig's blood. Oh, yep. <laughs> How gross is that? And I, we didn't know as kids we ate it because it was short. They, they mixed it with chocolate, chocolate cocoa right. powder. Right, that was the yeah, thing so, to do. So you put it on bread like Nutella, right? One day oh. I went to school and I told my teacher, she nearly vomited. I was like in the second grade. She almost vomited on me. But that was one thing. And when I realized, I got a little older, I realized what it was. I couldn't even look at it. Like the thought of what we were eating. But at the time, it was delicious. If yeah. you didn't know what it was. Fair well, enough. How Fair, gross. No, yeah. Sophia, that's good. That's awful, but that's a good uh, one. Uh, the thought of it right now is making me want to. Same, <laughs> same. Thank you, Sophia. You know, it's interesting. Um, 30 years ago, um, Curtis and Jay Diamond were on the radio together as uh, I think one of them was on 11 to 2 and one of them was on 2 to 6. So they would do like a handoff with one another. And they did 20 minutes on Sanguinach. It was, to this day, some of the funniest radio that I've ever heard. I don't know if either of them remember it. They did a whole routine all about Sanguinach. And Jay, you know, is a very gifted impersonationist. He's playing like five different characters in the course of this conversation. It was it was very funny. I always think of that whenever I hear about Sanguinach. All right. We're going to do the $1,000 minute, and then we're going to talk cryptocurrency. If you want a chance to win $1,000, then be the seventh caller to 1-800-848-9222. And if you are the seventh caller, then you will get the opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you get them right, then uh, you are going to be 
$1,000 richer. And if you choose to spend that $1,000 on cryptocurrency, well, hopefully you'll hear a thing or two about how that can be spent wisely. Um, so go ahead. Call right now. 800-848-9222. And then we'll talk crypto with uh, Simon Constable and John Tobacco. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We're going to talk cryptocurrency in uh, just a minute. Uh, but we want to give somebody an opportunity to win actual currency in the meantime. Because right now it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let me say hello to Jeff in Southhold. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Frank. Jeff, it seemed like you were doing a lot of conversing with Avery Brooks before you went on air. Was there some controversy about your eligibility? What's going on? No, he didn't seem to know where I was coming from. I live in South Hold, New York, which is out on eastern Long Island. Oh, he seemed to be a little. I'm very familiar with that. Um, do you listen to us on 107.1 FM out there? Uh, generally, I listen to you on 770, but I sometimes flip over to uh, to the FM. All right. Well, good. We're gonna, we may have some big news to announce on Monday with respect to uh, the some new programming that might be coming to the uh, the FM station. Stay tuned to Monday's show for that. All right. Jeff, I imagine you've heard this contest before. Every night. Okay, great. So I won't uh, overly explain. The important thing to remember, don't get nervous. And if you get a question right, we're just going to keep going so that we can get through all these. You ready to go? I'm ready. All right. How many letters are in the English alphabet? 27. 27. Jeff. Jeff. That's the giveaway question. Jeff. 27 letters in the English alphabet. What's the 27th letter? C? No, that's the 26th. Oh, man, I blew it. Jeff. Jeff, I, I don't know where to begin, Jeff. I, you know, um, all right. Well, I'm, I, 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 you seem like such a nice guy. I feel bad, but unfortunately... Our time together has ended, so I'm putting you on hold. And you may not know the alphabet well, but um, we're going to give give your information to Avery, and we're going to give you a hat. Which I got to get out of here. I got to get. Out. Is there some place to go? There's a place I can get away from all of this. Which fortunately has um, everything spelled for you already. So Avery, if you would take Jeff's information. All right. Have you seen what is happening in the crypto markets? Headline from Reuters, crypto meltdown deepens as stablecoin tether drops below dollar peg. Bitcoin drops below $27,000 level as crypto sell-off continues. Panic in the crypto market has Janet Yellen's attention. Bitcoin set for record losing streak as stablecoin collapse 
crushes crypto. Crypto investors panic during market bloodbath. I will lose my home. New York Post. El Salvador's Bitcoin. Bloomberg. Lose, losses swell to 28%. Has the crypto bubble finally burst? Well, uh, that was one of the subjects that they uh, covered on the Cats at Night show last night. John Katsimatidis had on Ryan Hain, who is um, one of the people that's a contributor to uh, the Steve Moore show. He's basically the the co-host of Steve Moore's show on the weekend. And John Katsimatidis has been very skeptical of Bitcoin. And this was an interesting conversation. This is the 77 WABC clip of the day from last night's Cats at Night show, which you could catch every night at 5 p.m. And this is a bit of their conversation. I said on Maria Bartolomo show yesterday, Bitcoin is the biggest fraud ever perpetuated in the, not the American people, the whole world. No, and the panel seemed to largely agree. We have two people that we've been using from time to time to chronicle the world of crypto. One has been a pretty enthusiastic crypto booster. The other has been a pretty consistent crypto skeptic. Uh, Simon Constable is a journalist, a broadcaster, a columnist, and author of the book, The Wall Street Journal Guide to the 50 Economic Indicators That Really Matter. Hello, Simon. Hello, Frank. Good morning to you. It's uh, great to talk with you. Where do we find you today? You find me in Edinburgh, Scotland. Wonderful, wonderful. It's a much more civilized time there, I assume. Oh, it is far, far more civilized. It's nine 9.36. Oh, don't, and, uh, the sun is out and all the rest of it. Don't rub it in. And uh, we're joined as well by uh, my old friend, my brother, really, John Tobacco, Wall Street uh, entrepreneur, host of uh, The Wise Guys on Newsmax Television. They did a great segment all about 77 WABC and the new Staten Island Ferryhawks baseball team. We'll, we'll, I'll, I'm going to post that on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Moranofan. And it actually featured not only the whole WABC, ABC gang, John Katzmatidis, Rita Cosby, Curtis Lewa, Sid Rosenberg, but making his TV debut was my son Carmine. John also happens to be the CEO of the Token team. So, John, thanks for that great segment and for uh, giving my son his first TV exposure. Thanks, Frank, thanks for having me and thanks for joining me into this esteemed panel with Simon. Thank you. All right. Uh, Simon, let me begin with you. Um, before we get into whether people should be buying or selling Bitcoin or whatever the case may be, what caused this dramatic, rather dramatic, crypto sell-off, and how bad is it? Well, it's it, it, it's pretty bad. Before we get into that, let me just say I'm I'm a skeptic of investing in cryptocurrencies. I'm not a skeptic of the technology. The blockchain technology is pretty interesting. But on the investment side, yes, I have long been a skeptic and I continue to be. We're basically, the reason the crypto prices are falling so dramatically is we're in a bear market for all assets and investors are selling everything. They're selling bonds, they're selling stocks, they're selling gold, they're selling silver. Um, they're not selling oil, but they're selling pretty much everything Everything else is, is, is being sold. And cryptos are in with that. And they have a massive disadvantage compared to uh, to cash is that they uh, they don't they don't give any interest. And they, they're not even as good as stocks. So they don't have any dividends either. So it's that's why I think it's a sell everything mode we're in. And that will continue for a while. Uh, so it's nothing n- inherent in the riskiness or instability of cryptocurrency itself, in your view. 
In my view, it isn't. But we, we also know that um, if you look at the tech sector, the tech sector has tended to perform in line with the crypto sector over the last few years. Um, not not for all time, but over the last few years. And and both are very risky investments. Tech tech stocks go, can go up massively and go down massively. And and we're seeing that with the crypto as well. Up, you know, easy come, easy go. It's got it's gone up a lot. It's gone down a lot. And so. You know, what, what do you expect? Uh, all right, John, first, uh, has Simon said anything thus far that you uh, vehemently disagree with? And uh, and second, where are you? Uh, you were you were Mr. Crypto for the last few years. Where are you in terms of cryptocurrencies as an investment right now? Well, look, we always have to abide by what Simon says, right? Otherwise, we get kicked out of the game. <laughs> you definitely don't have to agree with me. <laughs> but, um, Frank, oddly enough, although you positioned us as, uh, you know, kind of a bull bear on the, on the point of view, we kind of share a very similar idea. As you know, I've been involved in cryptocurrency and blockchain technology from 2014, and I've always said that blockchain and the technology are the main event that people should be knowing about and learning about and trying to invest in in collateral ways. Bitcoin is one use case, and I would say the greatest use case, and for your, at this point, but for your users, your listeners out there, um, think about the blockchain as this one big, great highway going from coast to coast, and each car on that highway is a use case. Bitcoin's the big, bad Cadillac right now, and there's a whole bunch of other places where blockchain is being used to make our lives easier, to transfer money better, to eliminate middlemen and brokerage fees and bank transaction fees. Um, but I have to agree with Simon that it is a very tenuous time to be thinking about investing. For the last, for the couple of years you and I were on TV together on Liquid Lunch, I said it every single day. Invest in Bitcoin with money that you can expect to lose every last penny of it, and you've set your expectations right going in. But right now, I think Simon hit it on the head. We're in a risk-off time. The market, for for whatever a number of reasons, is in the sell in May and go away mode. So people are taking off risk. They're taking profits. They're getting out of dogs. They're going to start looking at the market in a big way back, you know, in September or October. And at the same time, the whole meme crowd, the Robin Hood crowd, the stimulus crowd, all the, the doji coin crowd, all that money that was kind of caught up in this frenzy last year is basically uh, ostensibly been wiped out of the market. People don't want to sell their stocks because they're too down. So they're looking at their crypto, which is still somewhat up. So to me, um, I, I've never called on people to get out of Bitcoin. I've always thought that the long-term bias of five or ten years was going to be a good outcome for long-term investors. Um, but right now, you got Coinbase, the biggest market, the biggest uh, crypto market in the world, saying they may go bankrupt. And in the event they may go bankrupt, they may have to steal your money from your account right now to help them pay off their bills. And I think that's caused a frenzy where, you know, I could see, I could see myself Bitcoin somewhere in the fifteen to eighteen thousand dollar price range. Uh, so, uh, by the way, so John, at this point, are you you're not recommending that people buy the crypto di- dip, right? I don't think this is the time to be buying. I think thirty thousand right now is a very bad level. And to be honest with you. 
you know, you have your money in a brokerage account, it's covered by uh, Securities Investor Protection Corp. You have your money in the bank, it's covered up to 250000 by the FDIC. You have your money in a publicly traded company called Coinbase, and the CEO is telling you, if this business and the crypto keeps going down, we may go bankrupt, and we're going to steal the money out of our users' accounts. Um, it's To me, it's very scary, and I think it's causing a lot of people to say, hey, I'm getting my crypto out of Coinbase, and they're pulling it out, they're selling it, they're trying to get money any way they can. And let's not forget, I'd love to hear what Simon thinks about this, but... Um, Coinbase is losing money right now because crypto's going down and they're getting less transactions. I almost feel like they're doing a pump and dump by saying we may have to claim bankruptcy to cause people to sell their crypto so that they can make some more transaction fees. So I'm I'm really hesitant on on Bitcoin right now, but blockchain technology to me will change the world over the next decade. Uh, putting aside yeah. the the technology, Simon, uh, talking about cryptocurrency as a uh, as an investment vehicle or as a something that people actually use as currency um you know for a while it seemed like bitcoin specifically in cryptocurrency in general was very hot it was very trendy mayor eric adams he was one of the biggest promoters he said to miami no you guys are not going to be the biggest crypto city in the world we are in new york and the mayor even took his first three paychecks and converted it to cryptocurrency um we also saw these stories of these janitors and housewives essentially becoming millionaires overnight through early investments in in cryptocurrency was why did crypto become so hot all of a sudden was it simply the novelty or was there more to it well i think we can look at some examples of similar things happening elsewhere in the economy over the last few decades so there were people that overnight became rich by being day traders in the late 1990s there were people who became um you know, multi-millionaires by, by investing in um, dot-com stocks in the late 90s. Then we had people who became rich by investing in real estate in, 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 the, in the aughts up, up until 2007. And then they, of course, lost the money. And, and crypto is just the latest version of that sort of group mania. Yes, some people did make a lot of money. Uh, and that's great. I'm very happy for them. But a lot of people also lost a lot of money as the mania took hold. Um, and I think we've had a bit of a mania in this of late, people jumping on the bandwagon and not really understanding what's going on. John understands what's going on. This, If you want to invest in it, it's a very long-term thing. And now may not be the time to invest. Probably should have been five years ago. But, you know, you may need to wait a little while. And even if you do wait and put some money in, you need to you need to stick around for a long time for for it to to, you know, do well. And, and I, I just think it's one of these sort of you know manias we have. And there'll be if it isn't this, it'll be, you know, something, you know, something new, like, you know, collectible bars of chocolate or something. I, I don't really know what it'll be. And I certainly won't be investing in it. John, uh, anything you want to add there? No, well, I appreciate getting a compliment from Simon. I know he throws them around like manhole covers, so I like uh, <laughs> I like getting that from him. But uh, <laughs> and I am a big fan of Simon's as well. But um, I would just say that, um, as you know, Frank, in the equity world, I spent most of my career as a short seller, so I always 
find reasons why I think things are overvalued and you can make money on the way down. I'm not advising people to try to make money on crypto on the way down. I would say that um, now is certainly not the time to get in. Um, you should be educated and aware of what you're doing and be prepared to lose all your money. But I think there will be tremendous opportunities for people at much lower levels. And uh, at this point, I would say if you do have crypto gains, it might be a great time to take them. Um, sit back, relax, keep your powder dry, namaste. Um, and maybe at 15000 or 18000 um, you can get back in and you can put it away for 10 years and, and not look at it. But um, I did hear your food segment before this. Um, and I would, I would say that, um, crypto right now is like, uh, gobbledzell with sanguinoch and a little mayo on top. <laughs> Do not eat. Uh, fair enough. And with people just tuning in, we're talking about cryptocurrency and the rather, uh, precarious drop uh, that we've seen across the board in crypto with, uh, Simon Constable who's the author of the book, The Wall Street Journal, Journal Guide to the 50 Economic Indicators That Really Matter, and John Tobacco, who's the CEO of the Token Team, also the host of Wise Guys, Saturday nights at 10 p.m. on uh, Newsmax TV. I just linked to the most recent edition of Wise Guys, which uh, featured my son Carmine making his TV debut. You can check that out at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Hey, Simon, one of the knocks on Bitcoin and crypto in general has always been um, the danger of hacking and that uh, is it really something that's going to be secure and stable if it's all digital and somebody can kind of hack into it. One of the other things that has contributed in some quarters to it having a negative reputation is it being the domain of kidnappers and drug dealers. Um are those two things cause for concern for people that may already own Bitcoin or for people that are looking to buy Bitcoin once it drops to a certain level, maybe one of these levels that John is talking about? It's a definitely a concern to me. However, if you can buy other products that are related to Bitcoin, then you can still profit from it. So if you look at the futures markets, there are exchange-traded funds that hold Bitcoin futures contracts. There are um, exchange-traded funds that invest in the technology behind it that you can benefit from. One thing I do know about, you know, real sort of established markets like the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, um, the CME out in Chicago, which runs a futures exchange, is they know how to make sure stuff doesn't get lost. Right, you don't find people going onto the uh, the Chicago uh, Mercantile Exchange and trading futures, and then finding out that you know they thought they bought something and it didn't happen. That doesn't happen, right? It doesn't happen. And the same with the the New York Stock Exchange. If you click on the button to buy a stock or an exchange traded fund, you will have that. You will own it in a couple of days, presuming that you pay the money, um, and you know there'll be a record of that, and it won't get hacked. Uh, that is a way to do the Bitcoin investing without risking the exchange problems, the, the, the Bitcoin exchanges, which where you might where you might get hacked and you might be associating with some fairly dubious people. Mm. I expect in 10 years that will all be ironed out. Um, right now it isn't. But you, you see what I'm saying? You can you can still do this if you want to. I don't. But, you know, I wouldn't stop anyone else from doing it and they may get rich. 
All right. Uh, before we give John an opportunity to respond, Richard in Fort Lee has been itching to comment or or ask a question about crypto for the last 40 minutes. So I think it's only right that we give him an opportunity to do so. Richard, you're on with uh, Simon Constable and John Tobacco. Thank you. Um, I didn't know what the conversation was going to be about, but I have a little crypto. And uh, I'd just like to know, uh, looking at the... Uh, market now and it's up 10 percent so if it's down 40 now it's only 30 percent down and we're used to these uh big swings so you know like uh like was said by your guests it's a long-term investment. so you know i i i took enough of money out that i you know got everything plus some so everything now is on uh house money the other thing I'd like to mention is I hadn't heard about the Coinbase going bankrupt. And then it's a good thing to point out that you should have custody of your own keys or have a hardware wallet that you own the coins and you're holding the coins, not the exchange. Just use the exchange to buy and sell. Uh, All right, Richard. Let me let me get, get these guys to comment. Thank you, John. Anything else you'd uh, urge um, crypto investors, people that either are already holding cryptocurrency or folks that want to invest in the future when it dips a little bit lower, about things like that? Sort of cautionary um, cautionary things that they need to know about investing in crypto. Well, I will just add this uh, complimentary information to what Simon was saying. That's a little different. Um, you know, uh, Bitcoin is kind of blockchain itself is one of the safest delivery methods of, of, of transferring assets. And it's really like a needle in a haystack to get hacked. OK, many people don't realize that when you're talking about kidnapping and drug deals, um, most of that crime in the world is transacted in uh, U.S. dollars. So um, I don't I don't think Bitcoin, that part of the knock on it isn't really a good thing. I think that it is pretty safe and someone would have to be really smart to identify one wallet and then put all this terahashing power of mining to get into one wallet, and it could be, you know, it could be like uh, Al Capone's tomb when you get in there. It could be nothing in there. So it's usually someone close to an exchange or an insider who has passwords and stuff, and that's just, you know, like any other bank job, it's an insider. But I think it is pretty safe. Your caller there made a very wise uh, statement, and people should take heed to that. You can hold your cryptocurrency. If you have an account at Coinbase, you can hold it in what's called a cold wallet. You download it into effectively a little thumb drive, and you hold custody of it yourself. Now, if you lose the hard drive, you lose the thumb drive, you could lose all your life savings or your crypto savings. But um, And that's happened uh, to a bunch of people, right? They have lost all their, their, their life savings by, you know, maybe forgetting their password to one of these things, right? Yeah, I mean... Many people for years and years, you know, our old Italian grandpas, they put stuff in coffee cans and buried them in the garden or they put them in a safe deposit box. Um, if you're going to take your cryptocurrency off the exchange, you better put it somewhere safe and you better have a little redundancy on your password. But that's, to me, the most empirical way to have control and not be robbed of your assets by effectively by Coinbase or another exchange. Yeah, uh, gotcha. Uh, uh, Simon, anything 
Anything else that um, either, you know, people that are interested in the economy or potential investors need to know about what's happening in the crypto markets these days? Well, it's very volatile right now. Um, I mean, it really is. All the markets are very volatile right now. Um, It's rare to see this much up and down volatility. Uh, and and it's you know it, it's a treacherous market and probably should be less left to the professionals like John. I don't consider myself a professional, but you know leave, leave it to people like John who actually does this for a living and knows how to deal with with the sharks. Completely separately from that, one of the things that blockchain might be able to solve is the large number of people in the U.S. who don't have a bank account. They're mm. unbanked, and part of that. It's, it's a real problem for getting money to people. Um, think about the pandemic, getting money to people. Blockchain will allow that really easily, right? Really, really easily. So all those stimulus checks wouldn't have been a check. Mm. They would have been delivered by blockchain to anyone it, with a cell phone. It's a great that point. That would be brilliant. A great point. Gentlemen, to I'm going to have that. to end it there or out of time. Simon Constable and John Tabak are helping us understand what's going on. Uh, hopefully we can do this again soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Frankie. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, John. We'll uh, do 15 seconds of fame next. Give you an opportunity to comment on any subject for 15 seconds. 1-800-848-WABC. Straight ahead. This is the other side of midnight, uh, just about a minute left, so we're going to try and get through as many of these 15 seconds of fame callers as possible. It is indeed time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Stacy in Forest Hills. Hey, Frank. Guess what? Monday was heavy breakfast in the diner and we only have one left. The other one is a little rat infested. And guess who I ran into? Curtis's ex-wife, girlfriend. What's the name? Melinda Katz. All right. Jeff in Suffolk. Janine in Westchester. Good morning, Frank. Um, in the ne- within the next two weeks, Joe Biden wants to feed up to, to the World Health Assembly. The meetings happen between the May 22nd and 28th days. We're going to have to have that be the last word. Uh, we'll have more time for this on Monday. Deb Valentine is next with Judge Andrew Napolitano. Frank Moreno, good day.